1: What is up, Hardware Knox listeners? I am Dan Pavali coming at you, actually, with my fantastic co-host, Adam Promo, in just a few seconds. We're going to be doing our awards picks, and Adam will take us through the the whole spiel very shortly. I just wanted to introduce what's going to be our Boston Celtics look-ahead guest, which will come after our awards picks. You can look for the timestamp in the description of this pod or one of the tweets. Uh, Alex Kungu, you can follow him on Twitter, at Kungu underscore NBA. That's at K-U-N-G-O underscore NBA. NBA. does a great job following and covering the Celtics on Twitter and basketball at large. Seriously, I I couldn't recommend his um, Twitter to follow enough. But that's really all I have to say because we're going to get into a normal intro shortly. Let's hop to it.
0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of Hardwood Knocks. This is Adam Frommel here with my co-host, Dan Favalli. And the (laughs) 2020-21 NBA season is just around the corner. It is so close. We are just over 24 hours away we can see it we can feel it we can taste it we are excited for it Uh, we are going to be previewing it via some award selections today we're going through all of the nba's major awards meaning executive of the year coach of the year sixth man of the year defensive player of the year rookie of the year most improved player and mvp of course before we get into that a shout out to our sponsors betonline.ag and indeed you will be hearing from them shortly as always and then dan how's it going today I'm doing well,
1: Adam. How are you doing? We are, I just interrupt before you can even answer, it's going to be the regular season when this podcast is released, like the official regular season, or maybe it won't be. No, it won't be. But anyway, regular season basketball is coming. This is being released the day before regular season basketball starts. It really just means because this is being released on a Monday, folks, when there are no games, you should have all the time in the world to listen and download and review and rate and subscribe to this podcast. How are Maybe you doing? Even listen Adam?
0: twice, you know. Leave two ratings, like whatever works.
1: Yeah, juice the numbers. Like get on multiple phones, download the episodes. Come on, help us out here.
0: Yeah, we want you to inflate our numbers as much as the Charlotte Hornets are going to inflate Lamelo Ball's rookie stats.
1: Wow, a lot of Michael Carter Williams stuff going on in there.
0: Could be. We'll get to that so, uh, pretty soon.
1: How are you doing though? You're good.
0: I'm pretty good. Yeah it's uh yeah it's it's always a a fun time when the season is right around the corner. Um, even in this weird condensed off season where everything has just been packed so close together that all of the projects and podcasts and whatnot that we typically do have been a little bit more stressful than usual like I feel like we've just tried to cram so much into this short time period and like I hope it's worked it's just been it's been a lot I mean it has definitively not worked perfectly uh I think that's
1: been pretty clear. Our team look ahead series is going to leak probably into the middle of January so that's just the
0: status. Of I'm still of I'm still dealing. just I'm impressed with myself that I cut off the Crystal Basketball grades for NBA Math on Tuesday night and managed to release all of the team's grades by the end of Thursday. I
1: would like to see how many followers you lost on NBA Math for tweeting like a thousand times. It was his like Hispanic it was team. net
0: neutral. We okay. I I was following it cuz I was curious for the same reason and it definitely went down and went back up and then went down and and went back up. But, you know, we needed to give each team it's it's time in the spotlight, even if that was about three seconds. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, the discussion on those rankings will be coming. Those are forthcoming, folks. So you can wait with bated breath, and we promise you won't die whilst you wait. Let's talk some awards, though. You can. Let, how about you take us through this, since you since you mandated the awards order that we were going to talk about these in.
0: Well, we we did argue about the award order a little bit because we wanted to rank them. Insofar as we our, ever argued, yes. <laughs> right. But we wanted to start with the least interesting and finish with MVP because it's MVP. And then Dan decided that he doesn't find Defensive Player of the Year particularly interesting. So even though it's like maybe the second biggest award, I would say. Um, we, we moved it down in the pecking order. So I'd that, feel that,
1: I'd be way more interested in the award if I knew that Frank Ntilikina was going to play 30
0: minutes a night. You know, I would be way more interested in the award if it wasn't always given to a big man or a really good versatile wing defender, and it was instead graded like relative to the rest of the position. Like, just if if Marcus Smart or Patrick Beverly garnered more serious consideration on a yearly be- on a yearly basis because they're so much better than the rest of the players at that position. That's how I kind of want to see it. Just like be a relative award rather than a who provides the most value award.
1: I could see that. Marcus Smart would certainly appreciate that and he deserves it. This,
0: to... this is our case for having a best defender award in addition to a defensive player of the that year that would award.
1: confuse the hell out of so many people. And look Well we're... it's
0: like the the NFL does their their bullshit like offensive player of the year. Yeah who cares about MVP. NFL awards. Right. Can
1: you name the last five offensive of the year rookies?
0: oof a exactly. challenge i'm not prepared for that stop
1: just proving my notion that defensive player of the year is um uninteresting by the fact that we're spending so much time on talking about it before we're even supposed to talk about
0: anyway, it anyway we're going to start with the least interesting award which is executive of the year you know no no disrespect to those those front office men and women who who make the decisions to to build these rosters but like we care about the players a little bit more i think
1: yeah and as quick background we're doing this as we're not i approached it as this is who i think is going to end up deserving the award i wasn't necessarily predicting who might win um, i tried to do that and blend them uh but in the case of mvp like i feel like my my top choice is very clearly like like i my second choice makes more sense and i we filled this out with three spots for each award with the exception of mvp which we give five because we would be you know we could probably even talk about 10 players at that one and just go on so executive of the year my ballot went as follows james jones of the phoenix suns sam Presti of the oklahoma city thunder and neil o'shea of the portland trailblazers i feel like two of these guys are not receiving enough due for the offseason james jones is one of them i was not happy with the jalen smith pick i would have went with devin vassell or tyrese halliburton there i'm going to continue to bang the drum that imagine what halliburton could have become learning under chris paul for a couple seasons just throwing devin booker yeah uh, or playing alongside both of them in hybrid guard lineups, still, you you traded for Chris Paul, you signed Jay Crowder, and like the moves you made on the margins, um, bringing back Javon Carter, Langston, signing Langston Galloway, getting Etuan Moore, I just really like those. Um, even bringing back Saric, and I'm sure he was part of the decision to play Dario Saric as a, a five in the bubble and basically turn him into what feels like a backup center now. So we need to give James Jones his due. And look, some of it, I'm willing to give him slight benefit of the doubt with regard to his Smith pick because of what Cameron Johnson turned into. Um, and we all just you know destroyed that pick in the moment. Sam Presti's case is obvious to me. He had a trillion first-round picks, and I think he spotted also the market inefficiency of very few teams are, whether you want to say trying or organically, going to be so terrible, and he's leaning into it. There's a chance they're still too good unless they move Hill – Areza, Horford, or or sit them, but they've been on that track, and I think it was smart. This was a smart time to hit the reset button, and then Neil O'Shea was the one that I thought maybe wasn't getting enough credit, and the Blazers had a really good offseason. Just the additions of Derek Jones Jr., Robert Covington makes so much sense. People aren't like high on bringing back Mellow, and I guess you could argue the fit is combustible, but I kind of like it, and... Uh, the fact that this team has so much wing depth now, and then you pick up a Harry Giles, which really makes your front court so much more dynamic. We're talking about once Collins is healthy, you could play him, uh, Nurkic, or Giles at the five. Even you know lineups with Mello and Giles in the front court, where Melo might defend like the five in that. And we apparently we've seen a little bit of that in the preseason because Tara and Biggs alerted me to it on Twitter because I asked her to while we recorded a podcast if it ever happened. I thought these three teams had really nice off seasons. It does seem like. The Thunder might be the favorite to win this, just because of how they went about their rebuild. But I really think that James Jones and Neil O'Shea and, and their staff obviously just did a hell of a job this off season.
0: I was really close to having Mitch Kupchak of the of the Charlotte Hornets in my top spot, just because he drafted Grant Riller. But then I decided that that would be like a little bit too homerific. So so my ballot, especially post Gordon Hayward contract, maybe. <laughs> yeah, that that kind of negated it. If if it hadn't been for that deal, Kupchak would have been in my number one spot. Let's just say that. But yeah, I had uh, I had James Jones at number one. I had Travis Schlenk of the Atlanta Hawks at number two, and I had Sam Presti at number three. Um, you know, my my justification for Presti isn't really any different than yours. With James Jones, uh, I, I think that executive of the of the year probably should focus more on those moves around the margins than it does, and it tends to so often go to the the executive who brings in the marquee star that is just a franchise altering move and that's Chris Paul this offseason like I don't think we can overemphasize just how much it does for the culture in Phoenix, which is an organization that hasn't been to the playoffs in roughly forever. In addition to that on-court product, Uh, this is a really good team. And when it is a Western Conference playoff squad, it's going to be obvious how much that Chris Paul acquisition meant. And I think that move alone catapults him into the number one spot. Uh, Schlenk, I think you just have to give credit to how many moves were made to make the Atlanta Hawks such an improved unit. Um, You know, the big one is is either Bogdan Bogdanovich or Danilo Gallinari, but then you also added Rajon Rondo and Chris Dunn. Kept so many pieces in place, made smaller pickups for for a guy like uh, Tony Snell, and then I think he'll also receive some credit for the Clint Capella acquisition from last offseason, which should have a significant impact. Or from last season, I mean, um, which should have a significant impact on the the Hawks' efficacy on defense. And he didn't play last season, so it's going to feel like that new acquisition. So that that's why I had him up at number two, but it, it was difficult to leave Olshay off my ballot. I will say that much. Yeah, Schlank
1: was tough to leave off too, just because I don't know how I feel. We we both picked the over for the Hawks' win totals, which was around 42 and an 82-game equivalent. I just don't know. There's like some combustibility with that roster, and I think signing Rondo was like not the best move after you already had Chris Dunn, uh, so that could create some issues. But they're really, he has a strong case because they poached, I would say, two of the top five free agents that were like gettable that we expected or thought maybe could actually change teams. We knew Anthony Davis and Brandon Ingram weren't going anywhere. So penciling out those guys, he was, he was tough to, to leave off though for me too.
0: I wonder if we're going to see John Horst get any love in this just because of the honest Supermax, as well as the drew holiday trade. Like if Milwaukee does secure another number one seed in the Eastern conference with Giannis locked up for the foreseeable future, I could see him getting some love as well.
1: That's, yeah, that's fair. I don't know that you can get, should be able to get that award after what happened with um, Bogdanovich. Someone, whether it could have been from the King side too, but like someone messed that entire process up by letting the information get out that early. Yeah, agreed.
0: 2020 has already reshaped how we work and it's almost over. Businesses across the globe are challenged to be their most efficient, which means every hire is critical. Well, Indeed is here to help. Right now, Indeed is offering our listeners a free $75 credit to boost your job post, which means more quality candidates will see it, and fast. Try Indeed out with a free $75 credit at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. This is their best offer available anywhere. Go right now to Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Offer is valid through December 31st. Terms and conditions apply. Anyway, next up is the, uh, the coach of the year. Dan, you want to take this one away too, or do you want me to go first on it? Let's rotate. How about you go first this time? I would love to go first. In third place, I have Monty Williams of the Phoenix Suns. Uh, I think that is you know, going to be for obvious reasons, just with, as I said, um, while well, justifying the executive of the year case, like he's the one who's going to be responsible for that on-court product as we're going to see the Suns, a, again, a franchise that hasn't been to the playoffs in roughly forever, cement itself as a Western Conference playoff team behind Chris Paul, behind Devin Booker, behind DeAndre Ayton, um, who I'm going to talk about later. Um, so I I feel like he is a a very obvious choice to at least appear on one of those three spots. I've got Terry Stotts of the Portland Trailblazers at number two. Again, as as Dan mentioned, I'm in the executive of the year category. This roster is just so much deeper, so much more talented, uh, and it is going to require a lot of good coaching acumen to make all the pieces work because there are still question marks with so many of the different uh, main contributors, and how are they going to balance creating a good defense around Damian Lillard and CJ McCollum, which is something they've struggled to do at an elite level in the past, but now have those that wing that wing defensive juice to, to actually make it happen this season. But at number one, I have Rick Carlisle, who is just perennially underrated. And I feel like this is the season where it almost becomes like a pseudo-legacy pick that's also deserved just for the work in 2020-21. Because I, I think that the Mavericks are just going to exceed even the highest expectations and push at least somewhat close to the number one seat in the Western Conference behind Luka Doncic and doing that without Kristaps Porzingis available for the whole season is going to or for part of the season, I mean, is going to to really earn him some kudos uh, that he should have received so many times in the past because Carlisle is the master at eleva- at elevating the floor of the roster. No matter who the, the contributor is, like you know that he's going to be productive if he's in the Mavericks rotation, because Carlisle is so good at getting something from everyone in the right way. So with a more talented roster that should compete for one of the top seeds in the West, I think this is finally the year that he gets that credit.
1: Yeah, there's what's interesting about coach of the year is I know it's always wide open, but I think you could probably throw a coach at random to me, any of the 30, and I could make a fairly strong case for them to win this award. This season, obviously some stronger than others, my ballot. And you made fun of me for having ties in third place, but I told you I was going to break them in real time. Eric Spoelstra in third, uh, just the type of coach. I feel like could probably win it in any given year. I don't think the heat were a flash in the pan last year, but I also think they're worse, noticeably worse without Jay Crowder. And I don't know how their front court rotation remains as dynamic. That being said, that only sets the stage to me for him to exceed expectations with the team. Like maybe we're just going to all of a sudden see Duncan Robinson play a bunch of four and or you know small like small ball with other Robinson at the five like he'll do something weird to make up for it I had Terry Stotts in second place as well I actually put him first when we made these picks for Bleacher Report our full-time employer uh it was just agony choosing between him and what's actually going to be my first place one I don't have much to add to what you said except for the fact that what the Blazers have done on defense and while it hasn't always worked when you look at their standings like they try and limit like the damage is done by playing this It's like a team friendly defense where it's like kind of tries to de emphasize the weaknesses of everybody. And now they've added one of the best team defenders in the league in Robert Covington. And it just makes so much sense. And that even with Derrick Jones Jr. being able to fly around there, I don't know that he's, you know, the players are going to deserve a bulk of the credit for it. But the way that they've played, I think, is going to end up suiting this roster really well, which ends up boding well for Stotts. And the other thing would be for me with him is. How he juggles the wing rotation because there's so many of them, and then what happens with Mellow because he has to be part of like being upfront and transparent, like Damian Lillard was, like CJ McCollum was, like Neil O'Shea was in kind of handling that situation. And so if he's able to navigate that, I'm betting that he can in good fashion. That's really going to put his name in there. My actual pick was Monty Williams, uh, who was your third place pick. Uh, the Suns are going to be really good. And I'm convinced, I don't know if this take is spicy, but I'm convinced that one of them or the Blazers are going to finish top three in the West this season. And I, maybe I'm overselling the number of games that Chris Paul is going to play in for Phoenix, and that certainly changes the calculus. But even if Chris Paul misses like 15 games or something, I feel like the Suns are built to be good like without him. I wouldn't be nearly as high on them or necessarily pick them to finish above 500 if you take Chris Paul out of this equation, but Devin Booker is so good and you've merely sort of improved the talent around, like having Jay Crowder there is just like a really big upgrade uh, for, for them when you're looking at the wing rotation. I also expect big things from Mikhail Bridges. So I think the Suns are going to be good enough to put him in that conversation, which is saying a, a whole lot. Maybe he kind of carries over some goodwill from the bubble because of just how much acclaim the Suns were generating in there. And we saw some of the videos of the behind the scenes. It's We're not there on a day-to-day basis and even the beat reporters, like they don't know what's happening every moment but every moment but it seems like he, he really resonates with those players and that's not something small because that's still a young team when you're looking at many of their most important players namely devin booker mikhail bridges and deandre ayton uh i think cam johnson is 34 so he doesn't count but yeah that's a one or two could go either way here for me
0: i do always just i feel a little wrong picking coach of the year each time we do this just because as you mentioned we aren't there to see what's happening behind the scenes on a day-to-day basis, we're not, you know, totally attuned to the the strategic shifts and the X's and O's that are being implemented day in and day out. So it always kind of just it feels a little iffy to me to even pick this one, just since it's almost like rewarding the coach whose team exceeded expectations the most, which it's hard to decide who should get credit for that. Yeah,
1: and it's also just bad name to have to pick from a field that includes so many legitimate like
0: possibilities. Yeah. But now we can move to the players. Sixth man of the year. And it's your turn to go first.
1: So I went with Mello in third because, look, look, he averaged over uh, 15 points and shot better than 38% from three last year and sort of like had the perfect sixth man impact without being the sixth man for them. There's something to the effect of can Mello stay in rhythm if he's playing fewer minutes off the bench. And I think that's fair. But the Blazers do a better job of—it's certainly better than the Rockets did—of letting him indulge being mellow, where letting him set up on the block, work from ISO, but then he's also willing to you know, shoot a bunch of catch-and-shoot threes. And if he's playing on the second unit, he's going to be able to be probably even more so his normal self because you're not going to have Damian Lillard on the court. You might not have both he and CJ McCollum on the court in those minutes. So you're either playing with one or none of them for a lot of your time— if he ends up closing games, that probably bolsters his case. I don't know what that actually does for the Blazers' case of winning those games, um, just depending on how the lineup is fleshed out around him. But I think that this is the year, I'm not going to predict Olympics, Mel, but I think this is the year where bringing him off the bench works. Daniel Gallinari's runner up for me. When we did, you know, when I did the Hawks outlook pod, it's tough to say whether he'll stay on the bench for the entire season. There's one injuries could factor into that. What if they trade John Collins? Should they be unable to hash out an extension? So there's a little bit of risk there. But Danilo Gallinari is just, like, one of the best offensive players in the league. And it doesn't really get talked about enough, like, how malleable his scoring is at every level. And he's someone who's going to generate his own shot. He can hit a bunch of catch-and-shoots. Defenses are going to overreact to his pump fakes because they're convinced that he could score from anywhere. And his availability can be an issue, but that's not really, like, too big of a deal in six-man-of-the-year discussions. And this is a stat while I was writing about him that I just found so fascinating uh, since 2015-2016, he's averaging 18.8 points um, on a four, 47.3 free throw attempt rate and a 60.8 true shooting percentage. There's only one player who is hitting those benchmarks across the same time span. Would you even care to guess who that one player is? James Harden? I hate you. It's James Harden. But like that's that's wild to me. And he just seems like he's perfectly built... To play the bench role, and I feel like by coming off the bench, they might be able to move him around in a bunch of different positions. Maybe we see him play more backup five than than we really expected because um, Onyeka Kongu either he's not going to be ready right away, and who knows how long it takes for him to come around, and perhaps they don't want to log John Collins as a backup five in too many minutes. So he's two. And first place for me is probably a risk too. Karis LeVert, I think that's going to end up being his best role in Brooklyn it puts the ball in his hands more and he's just he was one of the best off the dribble three point shooters last year and i know people kind of harp on his efficiency off the catch it's not good that's fair uh doesn't matter as much though if he's the sixth man he'll only you know most of his minutes when he's coming alongside Kyrie and KD will be in closing games so he does have to figure it out but to put the ball in his hands more makes sense and part of that is he's a really good passer like there are shots that aren't going to be there If he's not in the game, Uh, you know, compared to Kyrie Irving, like, is he a better playmaker than Kyrie Irving? I don't know. I call him comparable just because table setting isn't necessarily the crux of Kyrie's game. So when Karis LeVert gets moving, he makes some really nice finds. And if he's going to be the first guy off the bench for Brooklyn and he stays healthy. And if you could guarantee me that he, that he stays in that role, he would be my overwhelming favorite to win this award.
0: So I have Karis LeVert in third place. Um, for my ballot and largely for the same reasons that you have, um, I, I don't know if he's going to stay in that role. I don't know if he's going to be traded midway through the season. But I was I was just so blown away by the the facilitating improvements that he made throughout this past this past offseason that even though this is largely a a scoring centric award, I would say, uh, just based on the history of who's been selected to win Sixth man of the year, that, that those passing chops are just going to earn him a lot of love and elevate him up player rankings in general. Uh, I'm going to skip to number one because I had Danilo Gallinari there. Um, It it is a risk, as you said, because he could move into the starting lineup, but he's just such a talented scorer, and the Hawks need guys – who can create their own shots and who can generate free throw attempts. And he's going to live at the line just like he always does. He's dangerous from all three levels. Uh, he has throughout his career, he's come off the bench in 60 career games and his shooting numbers have been worse in that role. But I think it's telling that he accepted that role um, as a condition upon coming to Atlanta. You know, they They made no secrets that they intended to bring him off the bench at least to start this season. So the fact that he's buying into that role Gives me a little bit more confidence. The only discrepancy that I had on my ballot was I had Will Barton um, as my primary runner-up. Uh, again, it's a little bit of a risk because he could supplant Gary Harris in the starting lineup. The Nuggets could also eventually opt to bring Michael Porter Jr. off the bench and start Barton at the three. But it's it's hard to believe how important he is to this team and this organization. Given the fact that it went on a Western Conference Finals run in the bubble without him, but he keys so much of what they do on the offensive end with his transition ability, with his ability to create his own shots and just kind of wreak havoc in that half-court setting um, with his his physicality, his aggressiveness, he gives them another outlet um, with which they can create on the offensive on the offensive end and is also a a little bit underrated these days on defense. So, you know, as as I, as I said, it's it tends to be a scoring based award. And he's going to put up a lot of points regardless of his role. Yeah, and look, I guess the other part for him would be, can he stay healthy just because he's had some health issues right. the past couple
1: of years? But that, that's a an awesome thing. That's a Gallo call-
0: question too, yeah. And
1: so I guess we're assuming that it's Harris and Michael Porter Jr. starting in Denver then, if that's going to make cool a so.
0: sixth the year. Yeah, it seems to be a safe bet based on what we're seeing so far and just the yeah. overall roster construction.
1: Hey, let's start rotating who's going to name the awards that you're going to go first on this award. This is your baby or the one that um, at least is more of your baby than mine. Defensive player of the year. Take us through I mean, your I, ballot,
0: please. I ultimately agree with you where I just I don't think this one is that interesting to talk about because it's the same players every year. So it, it's a big award. Like, I, I still think it's the second biggest award that the NBA hands out. But it's just it's inherently disinteresting because It's rehashed every year. So I'll go fairly quickly here. And uh, in third, I have Anthony Davis, who is the fulcrum behind everything the Los Angeles Lakers do on the defensive end. They have one of the top defenses in the NBA. He is obviously impactful through his sheer block and shot alteration numbers and is versatile enough to basically guard anyone for a possession at a time. He's a, a virtual lock to appear near the top of the ballot any given year while he's in his prime. And this should be no different. Uh, second place, I have Ben Simmons, who is probably the most versatile defender in the NBA. Like you talk about guys who can guard positions one through five, and he should be at the top of the list. I believe that uh, B-ball Index is Christian Narsu, his versatility index. Simmons is always near the top in terms of just the the variety of players that he guards, and he doesn't just guard them; he guards them well. There's some risk here if he gets moved. You know, he's currently in the middle, and I guess this could age poorly if the trade takes place between recording and release. But he's uh he's in the middle of trade talks uh, to potentially be moved in a James Harden trade to the Houston Rockets. I don't think that would tank his Defensive Player of the Year stock just because he is going to be such a game-changing defender regardless of where he is. But my number one pick is a uh, is a repeat winner here with Giannis Antetokounmpo. You know, similar reasons as both of the other guys, where he can just do absolutely everything on the defensive end, and it feels like the Bucks are are taking away a little bit of his offensive responsibilities with the acquisition of Drew Holiday, who can create more offense. Uh, So between him and Chris Middleton, Giannis might not have to expend as much energy on the offensive end, which means it's absolutely terrifying to think about what he could do on defense if he's able to channel that that energy uh, into that end of the court. He was already just such a wrecking ball who could guard anyone, and just much like the other guys, um, and was just so remarkably impactful night in and night out. And I feel like there's yet another level to his defensive game that he is in a position to reach this year. You're muted. I'm going to start with Giannis, who is number two on my list.
1: And I I agree with everything you said. I'm just curious as if we could see regression from the Bucks on defense overall, just looking at what if Brooke Lopez doesn't have the same year, you don't have Wesley Matthews, And part of, and, you know, Andrew holiday is like, yeah, he can, he has more positional reins than Eric Bledsoe did, but you're sort of in this situation now where unless you're going to use Middleton against these number one wing types, there are going to be matchups where I don't think that you can necessarily use drew holiday as that guy. And so Giannis has been at his best when he's just allowed to like float and free safety. Yeah. Yeah. And gamble and all that. I don't know if he has that same freedom. This year, maybe that doesn't matter. Uh, I considered putting him one even more so when you'll hear my pick, just because of how much of a risk it is. For three, it was a toss-up between Rudy Gobert and Anthony Davis for me. I went with Anthony Davis. It's not a question of voter fatigue for me. I don't think that Rudy Gobert is actually going to regress. That he was the only reason that the Jazz didn't fall further outside the top ten of defensive efficiency. It's just that he does do a little bit less when you're looking at moving around the court, and I think the level of responsibility matters. And the other thing for me is like. I do wonder if the Jazz are good enough defensively to make it work. Having Derek Favors in the backup five minutes should help, but as you raise your hand. But I don't—just looking at this, you know, the wing rotation, there's not a lot of athleticism there. Uh, that was a problem last year, and then even the backup wing rotation could get a little bit weird. Maybe I end up being way off on this. He's always in contention for the award, but that was my
0: reasoning But behind not putting him on this ballot. I just wanted to say that I, I really struggled not to put Gobert because on a per-possession basis, he absolutely deserves to be up there. But it's the, the added depth that the Jazz have for me, bringing Derek Favors back and the drafting of Yudoka Azabuki, who is filled, he, he's able to so fill you're saying like, they're going to trade him? I'm not saying they're going to trade him. I'm saying they're not going to need to rely on him quite as much this year and get to preserve him for that inevitable playoff run. So I, I, I just don't think that he's going to play enough minutes this year.
1: The other player I thought about is Joel Embiid. I just don't know if he's going to play in enough games to make this work. And then if he ends up playing with James Harden, I do think that makes his job a lot harder. I'm not even trying to make a joke there, but it, but it just does. Going from Ben Simmons to James Harden would be a huge difference. Uh, so I have Anthony Davis at number three, and if I could describe his defense in one word, it would just be uh, ubiquitous. He is everywhere at the same time without ever like diverging too far from his actual assignment just his length his disruption he is so good and a lot of people cited the on-off splits for him last year with the Lakers where they were actually more efficient defensively with him off the court when you look at the lineups that he was saddled with propping up Outside of the starters, that explains a lot of like the murky data. And it's, you know, he can, he's not gonna be like have those raw rim protection numbers, but only because he spends so much time away from it and it's just everywhere. So it wouldn't surprise me if he actually won it. I just, my question would be does he play in enough games? Do the Lakers care enough about the regular season to be elite defensively? Those are, you know, baseline, low hanging fruit questions, but they're fair. And then Simmons is number one for me. If he gets traded, I don't know how I feel about that if you put him in Houston. Um, I don't actually want him in Houston, by the way, if they do move him, I hope there's like a third team. Is it, you know, Portland or Phoenix that can like kind of get in there and just put him in a better situation. Uh, digressing though, he's the most versatile defender in the NBA right now. And you already talked about like the versatility rating, but he is like really, uh, some people don't think he could defend the five. That's, I would still use him at the five, uh, just to test it out, but he can go one through four without missing a beat. And it's not even that it's if you pick, um, a guard, a wing and just say, go delete him. From the planet he basically can just do it it's like yeah he could do a lot of stuff away from the ball but if you want him to zero in on someone and just take him out of the game plan ben simmons is the defender that could do that yes i'm it's a I'm, great way to put it i'm hype I'm, I'm, I'm like being a hyperbolic a little bit but i'm also not like he's just so good at doing that so if he stays in philly is how I would feel really good about this award. And look, it lends itself, if he actually doesn't end up on the Rockets, it's probably because Philly's playing pretty damn well, in which case he's probably having an exceptional defensive season, just like he normally does. The wait is finally over. Football is back. You might not be at a game this year, but you can still be in on the action at Bet Online. BetOnline is going the extra mile to make sure you can get in on every possible chance to win this season. From game spreads and totals to team, player, and coaching props, BetOnline gives you more options to wager on than anywhere else. You can get in on their season opening bonuses today and start off wagering on wins, division odds, and championship futures all day, every day. Head to BetOnline today and take advantage of all the great signup bonuses. Don't forget to use promo code BLUEWIRE, all one word, at betonline.ag. That's Blue Wire, all one word. Bet online, your online sportsbook experts.
0: And so let's move on to rookie of the year, which inherently has to have new names, and it almost feels like we should just skip this award this year because it kind of feels like a Michael Carter Williams year, where like there might not be any true game-changing rookies, unless you feel differently about one of your top three picks.
1: Look, first of all, I'm just happy that uh, you've been converted to my rookie of the year pick. So one,
0: what however, do you mean converted. I, I said this from the beginning.
1: Oh, well, I didn't know you said it because you we were doing NBA 100 rankings on the side and you said, are you putting so-and-so as Rookie of the Year because he's the only rookie you gave an X score to. So, so I'm counting it as I got there first. Fair enough. Uh, well, here's a question, and you're going to hear it on the next segment of this pod because I talk with um, Spins about it. But if you had to pick one rookie to be a top 100 player this year, who would it be? I don't think I would. Yeah, we couldn't we couldn't do it. That's what happened. Um anyways. Yeah. So I have third, no idea. Third for me was Patrick Williams in Chicago. I'm it'll be interesting to see what type of volume he shoulders. It does look like they're going to throw him on wings, which could get really ugly defensively, but I think he's going to end up being better on offense than people believe and if, you know, you can get him minutes, ample minutes in the front court at the 4, um that probably means knifing into what Thaddeus Young is doing, maybe even Otto Porter more so than Larry Markkinen. Uh Maybe even look at moving Markinen at some point in the season should you not agree to an extension. But I think they really want to see um, he and Wendell Carter Jr. play together. I just love the idea of Patrick Williams. And I, I would throw him at small ball five. I think I'm a sucker for small ball lineups. No, I agree. Uh, but I would try that too. So I think he's going to be better defensively than the average rookie. And I think his offense is going to surprise some people. It might be slow motion, but he can do more stuff off the dribble than he was credited with coming into the league. He is one of the rookies that I actually heavily scouted. I'm going with LaMelo Ball for number two, and it was hard not to put him number one by virtue of the volume he's going to enjoy, especially if Gordon Hayward's going to be dealing with injuries yet again. Uh, Here's hoping he recovers from his fracture soon. Uh, But my whole thing here is, like, from the highlights I've seen in preseason, because I've been on a preseason blackout while wrapping NBA 100, his passing is divine. And so he's just assist numbers alone might throw him up there. My pick was though, Tyrese Halliburton. I think there's going to be a real role for him in Sacramento, even if they don't trade, Buddy Heald, I don't know that he'll work his way into the starting lineup over him, but I think he'll play a bunch of minutes. I even see scenarios where they play he buddy healed and the Fox together. And he's like a borderline perfect fit to play beside Fox. Um, he can shoot off the catch. He can also be sort of that secondary creator in minutes without Fox, and I, I think he's probably going to be close to, like he, he's going to be one of the best defensive rookies, I think. And he just has like real wing defensive range. He was the player, as you know, that I wanted the Knicks, to, the Knicks to take and they did not. And I think that stance is going to age extremely well for me, but that also means the pain is going to age extremely potently for me. And he's my rookie of the year pick. I, I understand, I think LaMelo Ball is the smart, safe choice, but I there's something about Halliburton that I just can't quit.
0: I am right there with you on Halliburton, who was also my number one pick for this award. I was similarly disappointed when the Atlanta Hawks did not take him because he would have been such an ideal fit next to Trey Young. And then I was disappointed when the Phoenix Suns didn't take him because he would have gotten a chance to learn from and play next to both Chris Paul and Devin Booker. Uh, but uh, Sacramento is a really good landing spot for him. Uh, yeah, the, the the two-way ability is key for any rookie just for carving out minutes, not necessarily in the rookie of the year conversation because it does tend to be who put up the most glamorous numbers, but it guarantees him playing time, which is really important in this class just because that's relatively uncertain for just about every incoming first-year player. Right. Um, I, had, I had LaMelo Ball down at number three. I do think that uh, that the Hornets are going to feature him heavily, but the growing, the learning curve is going to be steep for him. He's not going to be an efficient shooter. shooter he's going to struggle with turnovers a lot. He's going to lead the, the rookie class in highlight plays, and I don't know if that's going to be enough to move him up the ballot to that number one spot, because it's going to be a struggle, and that's by design in a lot of ways, just because they're committing to him as the future face of the franchise, and they're going to feature him right out of the gate. Um, I do have Obi Toppin at number two, though. Uh, he might come off the bench for the Knicks. He probably will come off the bench for the Knicks. But he's just such a special offensive talent that I, I think he is the 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 safe bet to lead this class in scoring as a first-year player, which tends to matter a lot. But yeah, I mean, if you go back and watch him at Dayton, you know, lead, led the NCAA and Dunks was an efficient three-point shooter. He's a guy who can create for himself, can play in the pick and roll, can play off the ball, can't play with Julius Randle because everyone struggles to do that. But aside from that, like he, he's in good position to put up some big numbers. I guess the Knicks have like put
1: enough non impact veteran talent around him to ensure Tibbs will actually play him. But Julius Randall might be like a huge roadblock to his winning rookie of the year because Tibbs will play him so much.
0: That's an interesting that's, pick. That's why I had to throw in a shot though.
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, Most improved player. I believe it's your turn to go first. Why don't you take us through your picks?
0: Can't believe I'm about to talk about back-to-back Knicks. That seems like I it just has to be the first time in decades on an awards podcast. I'm
1: very interested to hear your justification for this because I think it's an awful pick. I just want to preface before you even get into it. I'm just gonna, I'm going to taint the listeners by saying that I think <laughs> you're full of shit. <laughs>
0: I appreciate that. Like, the honesty is always welcome. But yeah, my, my number three pick, and I guess I'll, I'll let you respond to it right after I uh, attempt to justify it, I suppose. But yeah, I've got RJ Barrett here. I'm usually very hesitant to pick second-year players, but I think that he learned so much from the first season, um, as much as he struggled to, to shoot the ball efficiently, to look like he was comfortable operating within the confines of the Knicks broken offense. But I I don't know. I just, maybe it's just a gut feeling here, but I just, I see a special offensive talent and watching him in this brief three game preseason sample with which we're working before making those picks. Like, He's averaging 18.7 points, and more importantly, he's he's finding the right shots. That's without his three-pointer falling, which we know can, but he's still shooting 51.1% from the field. He's limiting his turnovers despite filling a bigger role. And I, just, I see him using what he messed up on during his rookie season, as disastrous as it was for a, a lofty pick, and, and really learning from that and becoming a much more competent player who is going to be the centerpiece of the Knicks. Now, I want to make it clear that I think there's a pathway to R.J. Barrett
1: becoming a really good player. I think this pick looks terrible until or unless the Knicks move or stop playing Julius Randle next to R.J. Barrett. It just neuters their spacing because Randle can't be the center in those situations, and they don't have these... You know, if you want to play him next to top and fine, but that's that's going to just be. the, I don't think
0: Randall will finish the season in New York. Good, but that's that part and parcel here.
1: But I, I think it's really important that he doesn't even begin the season playing a lot of time next to RJ Barrett. It's not, look, I'm just he takes the ball out of his hands at points, and then the, the the way that the floor shrinks. So I do think RJ Barrett has the talent to do it. However, I would argue even if you get rid of the Julius Randall factor, the high bar that we hold most improved player for when you're going from rookie to sophomore it doesn't normally feel like a situation where it was oh you were kind of whatever during your rookie season and now you're a replacement level or above as an nba player it's oh you were luka Doncic, and then you were year two luka Doncic type situation so um that would be my argument against it i think it's a i hope you're right i think it's a terrible pick
0: <laughs> we'll see that's all he, i have to respond there who, but, uh, actually, but
1: it's third on your ballot so let's go up third. it they get and better i, yeah, I, I mean
0: think. right <laughs> it can only get better right um, at number two, and and I, I strongly considered having him at number one is OJ OG Ananubi for uh for the Toronto Raptors. Uh, his role is just going to explode this season. He's bringing the ball up the court in preseason and initiating offense. He's being tasked with shooting the ball more, both on drives to the rim and and cuts off the ball and spot up shots. Just things that he wasn't asked to do with frequency while the Raptors still had Serge Ibaka and Marcus Gasol there he's just I, I am foreseeing an absolute explosion here in all facets of the game and he's already one of the more versatile and potent defensive players so I just I, I would be shocked if he doesn't finish within the top five of most improved player voting but at number one I had a guy who I, I almost considered like and I didn't, and I wasn't really that close to. I almost considered having him on my MVP ballot, um, and that's DeAndre Ayton. And I just, I think we are about to see a massive jump from him. We saw throughout last year where he started to look far more engaged and competent on the defensive end. That's only going to continue to look better with, with more competent pieces around him in Phoenix. He now gets to feast on pick-and-roll passes from Chris Paul, um, and even beyond that during the preseason we're showing him we're seeing him show off new elements of his game whether it's these these floater hook uh these these hook shots around the paint or even working as a passer more often you know, that was one of the the things he tended to struggle with most last year was he just he wasn't able to to see the court in a way that he could pass teammates open, or if he got double down, he couldn't hit that kickout pass. And we're seeing him start to do that already. And I just I see him becoming a complete player who is a no doubt like fringe superstar by the end of this year. I like that
1: pick. I just question whether a lot of his improvement could be chalked up to playing beside Chris Paul and uh, Devin Booker. The thing that I think his pathway to doing that would be. If they play him in units where neither Paul or Booker are there, I know they're going to stagger them a bunch as they should, but let's say those like five to seven minutes a game, they don't play with each other. Um, Aiton's just on there. The other thing is just if his defensive improvement really continues. I know a lot of people talked about how much he improved in space last year. He also, at times, looked like a legitimate defensive quarterback where he was just making the smart rotations around the rims, providing help at the right time. And so if he continues to do that, and like he's an anchor for a Suns being like, Twelve, thirteenth, 13th, like that type of range in defensive efficiency. I think he has a real case. He, however, did not make my top three. And my third is Jalen Brown, which I think is going to catch some people off guard because he... It's
0: almost as bad a pick as Barrett.
1: (laughs) Why is it bad? Look, he had a case last year. Averaged 20 points, up from 13. um, Career-high 2.1 assists, shot 38.2%. From three, 54.3% on twos. His game is extremely plug and play. He also improved his free throw percentage last year. When you're looking at sort of what he does on offense, like the vast majority of his um, damage is going to come, you know, in transition and on spot ups. Almost 90% of his made threes last year came off assists. However, they doubled his pick and roll frequency very quietly last year. And I think they're going to up it even more this year because of the Kemba Walker injury, because they decided to sign Jeff Teague instead of shabazz napier or bringing back brad wanamaker for some reason i don't know if he gets that playmaking jump but i think there's going to be a little bit of it by necessity and then i could even see his scoring is going to go up because you lost gordon hayward and then who knows how long it's going to be until you get Kemba walker back like those points have to come from somewhere i could see jalen brown being in a situation where he's averaging like 25 like close to it jason tatum's certainly going to be in that discussion as well and so if he scores a little bit more, continues playing, he's probably their second most valuable defender behind Smart. It depends on how much you value what Tatum really does off the ball. But I think a lot of Boston's lineups work because of the bigger wings that Jalen Brown can just tackle one-on-one. Um, so you know, if, if he's still defending like that, and again, his creation ups a little bit, and he's scoring the same at the same clipper a little bit higher, um, if it's a little bit higher, I could see it kind of being like, the, like a Paul George-type situation when he won it. So that would be I don't wouldn't compare him to Paul George, who's always been better operating off the dribble, but I think he's going to have the the license to do more on offense this year, which buoys his case for me. You saw that was just a bad a, pick. Would you like to take the talking stick for a minute?
0: I was I was just gonna say, just to be clear, I don't actually think it's a bad pick. I just I wanted to see what it was like to to insult my my co-host here since you rarely give me those opportunities. Uh
1: was it fun? Did you enjoy it? It's probably a lot no, better if I, you I have like. I thought I enjoy more.
0: If it was like a legitimate criticism, right. it would have been more fun. I, I guess like I'm shocked that you didn't have Chris Boucher in this spot. So like I guess I can criticize you for that.
1: People are not on the Chris Boucher train. That dude I'm blocks on, jumpers like You're their the layups. But
0: I'm in like the second car.
1: That's fair. I, I accept that. Um, everyone will be at my level by the end of the season. Rest assured. My second pick was Mikael Bridges, and it's funny that we both had members of the Suns on here. Uh, I have him if we. We don't do, on this podcast, all NBA, all defense predictions preseason. We do them like midseason. It just feels like too much of a crapshoot to do them before the season. Mikael Bridges probably would be my pick right now to make all defense. And I I see... Uh, a path to him being more consistent on offense based how last year finished. He's always been a good cutter, um, but he showed a little bit more consistency hitting his threes and actually taking them as opposed to passing them up. He even busted out like a couple step backs and, and pull up threes. And then his playmaking on drives is really understated. Those lanes are going to be even more available to him when you go from Ricky Rubio to Chris Paul, who's just a much better shooter. So... He's kind of a gamble, and I I considered putting Brown ahead of him because I'm not sure he'll have the offensive volume looking at Phoenix's pecking order. But he might just be so good on defense where people just realize, like, oh, Mikael Bridges exists and is really good. I think he works his way into it. And then I had OG Ananobi here basically for all the reasons you said. He might already be the best non-Kawhi, locked-in-Kawhi on-ball defender in the NBA and his three point shooting was up. Uh, you know, he shot a good clip from three point range last year, and then he put the ball on the floor more than ever. I don't know that he's ever gonna run half court pick and rolls. Like, I don't know they're gonna take him. The I think root. he's going to. He might. They might take him the route of Siakam. To. Like they've done it with Siakam. Why? Why won't they do it with Ananobi? Um, whose handle can be like kind of loosey goosey at times. But the Raptors, they try shit. Like I don't know what like the Raptors try stuff. Uh, So I think he's just going to have higher volume on offense coupled with his defense. And what will also help elevate his profile is I do expect the Raptors to be better than anticipated again, where most people have them in like five, six, seven range. I don't know that they're going to be number two again. I think they're going to be in the top four. So that's all going to help elevate his profile. So There's just not much to add to what you said. The major boon for him is going to be that that offensive volume, though.
0: I really wanted to have OG in my number one spot, but it's just, I'm just so high on DeAndre Ayton and like potentially becoming like a top 15, top 20 player this season.
1: We're also contractually obligated to fit as many Suns candidates into this exercise as possible. Apparently
0: so. Um, But yeah, let's, let's move on to MVP and let's switch our structure up a little bit here since this is a, a top five ballot. Let's, uh, Let's have you do number five, then I'll do my number five, and then you can do your number four, so on and so forth. Can I shame you for having two number fives at the moment? Like, what's going to happen here? Uh, do, you'll have to wait and see what happens.
1: Do there. we need to go 10 deep on this award? Do I go off the cuff and name five we more? We should. Members?
0: We should. The MVP ballot should be 10 deep, much like all-star rosters should expand.
1: Yeah, because my take would be—I won't spoil it. I'll wait until you say it, since you did pencil it and I didn't. Um, Giannis is five for me. Voter fatigue is just— I think it's going. It wouldn't surprise me if he won three in a row, but I think LeBron would maybe retire if Giannis wins three in a row when when he never did. Uh, So I I voted for T. He's going to get to him. I don't know. I don't expect him to be any worse, but people are also, unless he, you know, People are going to be, I don't want to say against him, but based off what's happened in the playoffs now, where even his, like now it looked like he had counters because he was comfortable drilling, um, pulling up into wide open threes, even if he wasn't hitting them at an the efficient clip. And then he turnaround con- jumpers. Yes, turnaround that, yeah. jumpers. They didn't work in the playoffs. And so I think that's going to stick with people, even if they work in, in the regular season. I don't expect Giannis to be worse. And again, I think you could probably, everyone here is interchangeable. Like if we went 10 deep, I think you could name. I could come up with legitimately ten players who might finish first. I I think just after winning it twice, the vote of fatigue will be there, and maybe he'll dominate more of the defensive player of the year discussion.
0: Yeah, uh, I I do have Giannis on my ballot, just not in the number five spot. Um, I was so close to putting Devin Booker in my number five spot. I have him listed with a question mark in addition to my my actual number five choice. I just I think the Suns are going to elevate. So high up the Western Conference standings, and he's as high as I am on Aiden. I still think Booker is going to be the player who's perceived as the best. Um, and if I didn't think Aiden was going to improve that much, I would have actually put him here. Um, I would have actually put Booker here. I mean, but I do have Jason Tatum in my number five spot, and I'm just I'm expecting him to get off to an absolutely scorching start, as I've said on previous episodes. With with Kemba Walker out, I think this is a chance for for Tatum to sh- continue to show off those facilitating improvements that he's made uh, throughout the last season and especially in the playoffs. He's going to have a a few triple doubles during the first month of the season and just he will be working with an advantage throughout the year. But I just – I can't elevate him over the the four established stars that I have above him.
1: Yeah, the thing with me is I wanted to put him there too. I think if the Suns are good enough for him to be in the discussion that Chris Paul is going to cannibalize a lot of those votes.
0: Yeah, and Aiden too.
1: No. But carry
0: on. No, no I, don't, I don't mean Aiden's going to get MVP votes. I mean that he's going to no, take he... credit away from Booker. Oh, yeah. Fair enough. That's –
1: yeah. They'll be like, oh, well, look, he has a good team around him. And it's like, well, that's kind of sort of the point there, Chiefs. Right.
0: But um, number
1: four – number four. I like I like the thought, though. Um, I have Tatum on my ballot, too. Just a, just a teensy bit. Just a teensy bit higher than you do. Uh, number four for me is Nikola Jokic. Again, I could talk myself into putting him higher – I just don't know if the Nuggets are going to be better in the regular season. I, I see a pathway to it, but I think the storyline might be, oh, look at Michael, and I'm not trying to say this is all narrative, but it's part of it, but look at Michael Porter Jr.'s growth. Look at Jamal Murray. This is the year that he really puts it like together as an offensive star and is more more consistent. Maybe they are just as good at finishing second, but like it's a situation where you could be numb to it, or again, after losing Grant and Craig, unless you trade for another wing, unless You know, Will Barton stays healthy or Michael Porter Jr. really makes a leap. You could be substantially worse defensively, just also looking at how old Paul Millsap has gotten in a very short amount of time, it seems. And it's funny that I feel like I'm... 2020 has done that to so many of us. Right. And it's funny that I actively have to criticize him to justify why he's only fourth on the MVP ballot. So the better way to look at that is I wouldn't pick Jokic to win it this year, though it wouldn't surprise me if he did, but I do think he's kind of certified top five.
0: It feels like there are like eight or nine players who you could very feasibly pick to win it. And Jokic like, is unquestionably on that list. I actually don't have him in my top five. I feel terrible about that because he deserves to be. But yeah, I mean, like, I, I just, I'm not certain that the Nuggets are going to improve during the regular season upon last year's efforts. And that tends to matter. Um, I, I do have Steph Curry as, as my number four. And the justification, as tautological as it seems, is just that he's Steph Curry. Like, I think it's important to note that that means that he's coming off a year where he only played in five games due to injury, but that's not like a recurring injury concern. This isn't like him having ankle flare-ups or rupturing an Achilles or anything like that. It's, he had a hand injury. He's back. He's going to be fine. We're already seeing the, the shooting range in preseason games. And the most important thing about Steph is that he elevates everyone around him. So if he makes Andrew Wiggins better, if he... Allows Kelly Oubre Jr. to continue to make further leaps. If Draymond Green looks younger and and more engaged, this this Warriors team is is going to rise significantly up the standings into the playoff picture, and it's going to be because of Steph. Yeah, look, I think it's important. I, let me just go right into my next spot
1: because it's Stephen Curry number three for me. And I, I don't really have much to add to anything you said. He, If he stays healthy, there's no reason that the Warriors aren't going to be a playoff team. I guess the question would be, are they going to finish high enough in the standings for him to get that love? I think he would have to be at least fifth, like, and that would be an outlier season. Um, not he, but uh, the, the Warriors. They, they could definitely get there. It seems from the very little preseason best I've watched again, this team is really going to hustle, and they might be better defensively than I thought that they were going to be. And just around surround Steph with a healthy Draymond eventually. And I, I don't think Draymond's drop-off from last year is going to be for real. He's 30. He's not 100. And he, was all, he played in 41 games, 43 games, whatever it was. He was banged up. Like, he was five straight finals runs. He had a bunch of different things going on. There were no stakes. I think he'll be better. So I do think the team will be good enough. But this is the year that hopefully we do re-appreciate how valuable Stephen Curry is. Because the Warriors have kind of always been his to carry. It's just been easily eclipsed because they had Kevin Durant, they had Peak Draymond Green, uh, they had Clay Thompson as well. Now they don't have Clay, they don't have Durant, they probably don't have Peak Draymond. This, if he's healthy again, I expect the Warriors to be good quality, and that that's going to do wonders for his uh, MVP case. It's the, I just can't emphasize enough like how much he just changes the geometry and scope of the court by not even having the ball, but by just being on it,
0: right. I, I don't feel like it's that unrealistic to think that if everything goes right for Golden State, that it could be a top four team in the West because of Steph. If he is back to that, that peak MVP level, if Draymond Green is fully motivated, if James Wiseman is able to contribute heavily as a rookie of Eric Pascal and Jordan Poole and, and Kent Bazemore and Brad Wanamaker all provide quality depth with Steph booing this team, it, it could very realistically rise that high up. Yeah, it's,
1: again, this is so tough. Like, you, there's. I feel like there could be—I I can't spoil it because we have two picks to go, but there are so many players that I could just talk myself into in this spot.
0: More right. than usual, right? Agreed. Yeah, Absolutely agreed. Uh, number three, I have Damian Lillard. And I, I think that he has so much goodwill carrying over from his bubble MVP and just the scorching heights that he hit for the Portland Trailblazers during that run to the play-in game. And and the first round loss to the Lakers, that it's going to carry over into this season with a much improved roster around him. Because as good as this Blazers team could be with a a healthy use of Nurkic, with Carmelo Anthony motivated, with Robert Covington and Derek Jones Jr. and Gary Trent Jr. and everyone else, there's still no question that Lillard is the fulcrum of everything that Portland does. And he is still just so ridiculously talented on the offensive end. And beyond that, even with this shortened offseason, he's also one of those guys who seems to bring something new every year, whether it's expanded shooting range or better pick and roll defense or just the ability to, to make those cross court passes, the skip passes. Like there's always something new that he brings. And I just I, I feel like he can keep reaching those heights that he hit, not just in the bubble. But also in February, right before everything shut down, if the regular season had continued uninterrupted by the coronavirus pandemic, I think that that Lillard could have worked himself into a higher slot in the MVP balloting last season.
1: It arguably was his finest body of work, given the breadth of injuries that they had to navigate. And he was tough for me to leave off my top five. Uh, He's the one that I left off that I feel most confident could win the award having left him off my time, and I reserve the right to change this top five MVP ballot by opening night. If I decide I want to pick Damian Lillard to win MVP, I reserve I reserve that right. Number two for me is, oh, the other thing that helps is the Blazers are going to be good this year, yep. uh, in my estimation, and so that's, if he's in contention for a top four seed with the Blazers, that helps a bunch. Number two for me is Luka Doncic. I think the, the he has the narrative there because KP is going to miss some time, and I think even with KP, Dallas is a one-star operation now, and that's situations that we might grab voters will gravitate uh, gravitate towards excuse me I can't speak apparently as per usual the other thing is he's just really good which I think helps as well and so like what is the next does does
0: it does that help a little bit I just want to be clear like Like, you need to be good at basketball I went I went through this
1: when uh like going from his rookie to sophomore season he was so good as a rookie I didn't know what an improved version of him looked like And then he goes from 21 points per game to almost 29. Six assists a game to almost nine assists per game. Ups his true shooting percentage by four points. um, Starts finishing through contact better. Shot 57.4% on twos. And we're not talking about him feasting on gimmies at the rim either. What does the next version of Luka Doncic look like? I'm not even going to begin to hazard that I can fathom it. Because it's going to be ridiculous. And the Mavericks are still set up to run everything through him uh you know maybe even more so than the Rockets are this year if James Harden sticks around uh that's not even a knock against him because that play style can be fit to play with others but he just makes the game so much easier for everyone else uh the way he uplifted what was one of the most efficient offenses ever last season the big thing for him that I think could turn this really in his favor is if he's competent in crutch time uh a lot of it is he needs help like better shot creation around him but he needs to take better shots, too. Like, the step-back can't become a, a, cl- a crutch for him. And the other thing is, like, maybe he just hits his step-backs slash threes in general at a higher clip. He's at 32.1% for his career. Slightly lower than that, I believe, on step-backs. I forgot to double-check. If he hits that at, like, 34%, is it, it? it's just over. I'm not picking Dallas to win the title, but, like, Luka Doncic is, like, fast track to probably best player in the league or most valuable offensive player in the league. He might... He's, he's close to that level already. I wouldn't say best player in the league, but there's a case to make that he's maybe better than James Harden right now. I don't know that I
0: personally would make it, but it's there. I, I have trouble disagreeing with anything that you said, and Luka Doncic is not at number two on my ballot. I'll let you draw your own conclusions. And, <laughs> until we uh, reveal whether he's number one or not in my top five. Um, but my, my runner-up is, is Giannis. Um, I don't think that he is going to win three in a row, largely for those voter fatigue rec- uh, reasons. But I do feel compelled to defend him here just because you know the, the, the idea that he didn't validate how good he was during each of the last two regular seasons in the playoffs is a little bit faulty. Um, during last year's nine-game postseason run, he averaged 26.7 points, 13.8 rebounds, 5.7 assists, 0.7 steals, and 0.9 blocks. He shot 55.9% from the field. He made 1.4 threes per game, albeit at a 32.5% clip. And he did struggle from the foul line. That's the biggest knock. But he did all that in 30.8 minutes per game. And I think that's the reason that this narrative that he wasn't able to, to validate the improvements exists. And it's because Mike Budenholzer held him back um, by not playing him more, by insisting on having the depth of the rotation and all that. So I, I think that as as much as that's going to exist in people's minds it will quickly be erased when he just dominates again during the regular season with an even better team around him yeah it's maybe i was overestimating what the voter fatigue will be with him but i do
1: feel like people look at players when they have flaws in the postseason they haven't remedied like that could end up working against them he's it would but again you could tell me he wins and i'm not going to be floored right Number one on my ballot, I don't feel too good about it, but I wanted to take a little bit of a jump. Uh, I seem to be lower on the Celtics than the consensus, and so that must mean that Jason Tatum is going to go bonkers this season. Uh, he is my first place pick. I could kind of see this being a, I don't want to compare I'm not going to compare it to when Durant won in 2013, 2014, but if you look at the season before he actually won it, where uh, his assist total skyrocketed closer to five per game, and that was with him averaging 28 points per game. I could see Jason Tatum being in like a similar territory, maybe without the 50, 40, 90 shooting slash that Kevin Durant had that season. And if the Celtics are going to be two or three in the East, that's going to add to his case. And I think it's possible for them. I would probably have Philly in front of them right now. I might even put the Raptors, but I do think it's possible. And then just the the playmaking burden, he have to shoulders regardless of what happens with Kemba Walker, but even, you know, Kemba Walker's a part of it. I, I think that's what we're going to see from him. And also I would. I don't know if I want to anticipate, but I, I think we need to accentuate like how actually valuable he is on defense. Yeah, Marcus Martin, Jalen Brown might be better in a vacuum, but he is just so damn disruptive uh, away from the ball, and he you knows how to gamble without getting burned. And so he is very much a high impact two way guy. And if you tack on extra scoring, um, he his escape dribble three is one of the best in the league right now, with you know four to five assists per game, and the Celtics are two or three in the East. That, to me, gives him almost an airtight
0: case for, for MVP. He is absolutely going to be in the conversation. I, I don't know if I would have him that high, just because it's, it's tricky given Boston's depth and when Kemba Walker does eventually return, how his role is going to shift, but like, I totally get the case. Um, I, I did, you know, it, it's boring, it's the consensus pick, it's the betting favorite right now, but I, I do have Luka Doncic in my number one spot. And, you know, as, as you said, um, when you had him a little bit lower, like, we don't really know what the next evolution is going to look like, but he turns 22 in February. He's the youngest ever top five finisher in MVP voting, and he has further levels to reach. So if I told you that he was going to average like 32 points, 10 rebounds, and 10 assists this season, like a 32-point triple-double average because his three ball starts – finding finding nylon a little bit more frequently because he's no longer turning the ball over as he continues to grow accustomed to filling this high volume role would you would you blink at that would you believe that it's possible like what if i told you that he's going to average like 35 11 and 11 like are we are we still like pushing the limits of imagination here or is that somehow realistic given what we've already seen in terms of how good he is and how much he's already improved like it feels like unlikely but not necessarily impossible and i think that speaks for itself
1: yeah the thing to stress is he already finished top five on the mvp ballot the youngest player in nba history to do so a lot of that has to do when players started their career but i don't really think that makes it any less impressive so you know you just kind of described a line like what if he has james harden's mvp season and i don't know that, that like that's not is it really outside the realm of possibility I, I would say no i mean you even named more scoring like james Harden averaged 30 uh, his MVP season, which was 2017-2018, right? Uh, yeah. 39-6. and six. And, like, it's, Luka Doncic is probably going to average more assists and, and more rebounds during that season. So, yeah, that's probably a terrible comparison. It wouldn't sh- shock me at all. The one question before we get out of here, though, who is the player? And We didn't mention Lakers, by the way, and I think you're in the same boat with me that I don't think that they're going to emphasize the regular season enough. Maybe Anthony Davis
0: senses, like, an opening and it's... really goes for it, but – It's the same thing with the Clippers and with the Nets. Yeah. Because you could make a case for Kevin Durant, for Kyrie Irving, for Kawhi Leonard, for Paul George, for LeBron James, for Anthony Davis. But with all those, they're operating in dual star systems that are going to be either figuring things out or taking it easy during the regular season. And there are so many candidates this year who deserve consideration that I just don't feel comfortable singling out any one of them. I will say, we
1: should probably go back and look, when's the last time that neither James Harden, LeBron James, nor Kawhi Leonard finished in the top five But there's of MVP no voting?
0: way to pick James Harden this year. I'm
1: just saying. Like, you cannot
0: make that well, case right now. Even like, yeah, when's the last time LeBron didn't finish in the top five right. of, of MVP voting? Uh, I think it was like 2003. That would be my guess. Um,
1: it was, oh, it was was because he missed time in 2018, 2019. So actually, but, uh, yeah, but when's the last time all three of them were out? Who's the player that you didn't put in your top five that would be most likely to just come to win this award?
0: It's Devin Booker. I would be, mine would be
1: Damian Lillard, I think, but, uh, I love the faith in Devin Booker here for it. You know that I'm, I'm all in on the Suns this year, the Suns and the Blazers. Uh, I'm all in on that. There's,
0: there's also a world in which John Morant is that answer yeah uh is it five years from now maybe probably but like i don't think it's entirely inconceivable that, that given jaron jackson jr's injury and indefinite estimated time of arrival here that
1: for the over under because you're assuming that the grizzlies are going to be good and they're not I going am. to be good I am.
0: i'm going to keep coming back to that
1: we need we need to figure out this bet that's coming do you have any more positive nicks takes to get off your chest before we get out of here
0: uh no. I've ex- I've I've given two positive Nick takes on this podcast which I believe is a 2020 record and I do not feel the need to further that.
1: Fair enough. Thank you all for listening. We said we were going to get out of here in this segment in under an hour. We did about an hour and oh 05, so we're ahead of schedule by our standards. Uh please please pretty please with sugar on top remember to rate, review and subscribe to us on iTunes even if you don't use iTunes. Just search Hardwood Knox, Throw us that rating, write a review. It really helps us out. So, please do that. And definitely make sure that you're subscribing and downloading all of our episodes wherever you are consuming your podcasts. Until next time, we leave even with a shout out to what is, in Adam's estimation, the 2021 NBA champion, New York Knicks. Alex, welcome to what is somehow only your first appearance on the Hardwood Knox podcast. I have bothered you for other stuff in the past in your DMs. But again, welcome to Hardwood Knox. How are you doing tonight? Man, I'm doing well. Thank you for having me.
2: It's about time. I'm a big fan of the show, so it's it's kind of surreal to be in a show
1: that you actually like to listen to, so I'm very happy to be on. I, for one, am shocked you like to listen to the show, so I really do appreciate it. Even if you're just, just blowing smoke here, it's going to make me blush. Um, are you doing as well as Rudy Gobert, though? I mean, $205 million worth of doing really well.
2: Uh, I wish. It would take me many lifetimes to be that happy. <laughs>
1: Um, so we're here to talk Celtics. Um, you are one of the, the best uh, Celtics follows on Twitter. And so I needed to have you on to pick your brain about an off season that I think was probably more eventful than they were expecting slash hoping for. And almost sort of similar to the previous off season where that was more eventful than they were probably hoping for. And I kind of have to start with the Hayward stuff. And insofar as it was available, and it really does sound like some version of it was would you have done the rumored framework deal of Turner McDermott and a first um or do you i feel like the Celtics at least in that situation they probably didn't view it seems it seems like Miles Turner is a good fit but if they didn't accept that deal my guess is they just don't view him as someone who uplifts like their contention window and the last note i wanted to make on that is i think it's pretty clear like you can't um there are jokes um being made about stars leaving boston and you know maybe danny ainge deserves those kind of trolls but like that's not a contract that you know from a team perspective that they probably should have a um, match for hayward anyway and so it's not so much his departure it's just it felt like they had the chance to capitalize on it and then didn't
2: yes and i mean um you know i'll i'll i'll, I'll talk with the first part of that which is about you know like the Boston, Indiana deal potentially for Turner McDermott in a first. Um initially I was kind I I was interested in it. Not so much that I'm a big fan of Turner, but I kinda understood that Boston's version where he would have more of a clear role, which is something that he said he struggled with in Indiana not really knowing where he fits in with some bonuses and whatnot. Mm -hmm. Um you to Boston, he act kinda has like a clear kind of role as like a Rim running, pip and, pick and pop big. Who um, you know eventually can maybe develop into maybe having some type of playmaking duties from the elbows and stuff like that. Basically, trying to turn him into Al Horford as much as you can. Um, I I kind of saw the vision with his game where that was possible, but then at the same time, if the Celtics don't believe that they could develop him into that, I I would kind of take their their word for it. So it wasn't necessarily like a thing that I saw as this huge missed opportunity because i mean um a lot of it is about you projecting what somebody is and i just don't think that they want a project at the big man position i think they ha- they already have one already that they're trying to develop that's not something that they were looking for and it just seems like they're they they kind of have a similar philosophy as you know the Dera mori era rockets with big men where especially this last season where they kind of just felt like you know you can get an Aaron Baines for, for a mid-level. Why why are you paying anything above that for someone that's not a superstar? And, you know, to this point, I think that's what that's kind of what they believe, and they kind of looked at it and thought, okay, we'd rather just have, you know, Tristan Thompson and uh, TP. They just j- generally felt like that was a better allocation of assets. And I kind of don't disagree because, I mean, they got season Carmen's finals starting Daniel Tice, which I don't think anybody would have. Right as
1: possible, you know. And that's certainly part of all of it. I think for me, um, I'm pro- maybe I'm just too too high on Miles relative to con- to the consensus, but it feels like he's less of a project and it's just more a matter of unlocking his positioning and volume where it's, hey, you know, don't stand 18 feet away from the basket when you don't have the ball and don't dribble into – you know, long, these long twos like pop to beyond the entire three point line and, and don't pass up these open shots. And then maybe they could have, you know, you mentioned, um, kind of developing him in a similar vein of Al Horford. Like, yeah, maybe that's where you try and groom him if he wants to try and do some stuff from the block, but it feels like he's already there and that it was, I, uh, he looks pretty good or the fit looks a little bit easier to negotiate in Indiana. Now that, um, Sabonis is taking above the break threes, which is something I don't know that I saw coming, but it feels like what's going on in Indiana is more like a warty fit issue than anything else. And that's why I liked him in Boston. Conversely, um, I get the sentiment that you said with not wanting to spend too much on bigs. And then we've seen Miles Turner kind of get swallowed whole by these like behemoths, like these, these just huge, like bulky bigs. Like he's not going to, I don't know how much he helps you against Joel Embiid. What I'm, then struggling to grapple with is I don't know how I feel about the decision to sign Tristan Thompson to the full MLE in that context when they did need wing depth, when they did need another ball handler, when I don't know how much like dearth he adds uh, going up against a Joel Embiid type or um, or a BAM type. And I, I f- again, I feel like the fit is good there, but I'm just wondering if that could have been allocated any better. I say that, though, knowing, well, then where is that money going to go if not to Tristan Thompson? I think it more so just caught me off guard that if they didn't want Turner, that they then turned around and spent their entire MLE on a big man who doesn't space the floor, too.
2: Okay, yeah. So I think there's there, there, there was kind of two parts to that response. One being, was Tristan Thompson the best allocation of the MLE? And then the other being, um, you know, uh, what what could what could they have gotten? Mm-hmm. um elsewhere in terms of guards and wind depth and stuff like that i think the celtics from a larger extent when quarter when gordon hayward actually left and went to charlotte um i think it actually opened up a different pathway that i i've been thinking since the Kyrie disaster that they were going to eventually have to face and they faced head on that year which is with having the brooklyn picks and then also kind of the Having this like you know box contender that turned into kind of a legit contender is that you were always balancing two timelines. You were balancing mm-hmm. this now team that had Kyrie and Gordon Hayward, who thought he was coming into a team where he was going to be the the big you know like the big star. So now he's oh him and Kyrie and Horford are about to be in a partnership, and then you have that, and then you have the Jays and Jason and uh, Jalen uh, Smart, and you had all these picks coming in and. These guys are eventually going to clash in terms of, you know, like roles. And I thought eventually what had what had happened was the young players that were maybe supposed to be people that were about to be supposed to on slowly. When those injuries happened that first career, they took too big. They took such a large step that it put them in direct conflict with those winners of. Um, Hayward, Morris, those type of bets. Mm-hmm. And I know I, I, it sounds like I'm getting way off point, but I'm, I'm tying it back in. And what I what I, what I I think now the Celtics kind of faith from, from that point since Kyrie's departure is what direction they were going to go in. Were they going to go into the Jason Tatum era as contenders that are contenders right now that need to be thinking about building a team directly around him? Or were they going to go into this as, okay, let's reset a little bit bring these guys along with Tatum and stuff like that and see where it goes from there. And I thought after the Hayward departure, it kind of made it clear that they have to go straight into building around um, Tatum and the Jays and they don't have to have that other part of, oh, trading all of these guys for an eventual star, a la like what they did or KG. Mm-hmm. Uh, so now I think, now I think this gets back to your, to your answer. Should they have used that Emma Leon, like a guard or wing, and something like that. I think they looked at this situation when Hayward left, and they said, "Okay, we're going to see what we have out of our out of Marcus Smart fully as a playmaker and a potentially guard. Uh, we're going to see what type of playmaking leaps we can get out of Tatum and Brown. Uh, we're going to see if we can get something from these draft picks that we just drafted, Payton uh, Pritchard, who they reportedly really like, and Aaron Neesmith, who's like you know thinking about thinking about shooting and stuff like that as someone that you potentially." You see, like if he hypothetically developed into who uh, we think he can be, that's kind of what they would want on this team. And I think, and then again, they have Romeo Langford, the forgotten man, because he's always injured, unfortunately. <laughs> um, and I just think they they, they were trying like, all right, this year we're going to see what we have in these kids. We're going to see we're going to see if Romeo can be this three and D guy. If he can be this three and D guy for us. If Pritchard can become a one of a cheap, one of a really good cheap third option uh, point guards, and let's see whatever the hell Jeff Teague has left. In the tank. and I think that's what got to them not using it on one of those um, potential vet guard wings, and to the big position where it's a little bit more shaky. Um, I don't think that the Celtics view the big position as finding someone that can contain like a Joel Embiid or something like that because. True school, they've never really been able to contain him. Right. His numbers against Boston are fantastic. Like he gets his bucket. He gets buckets. I mean, honestly, honestly, the the biggest deterrent to Joel and against the Celtics has just been his own fatigue and his own conditioning. He just runs out of steam, honestly. I mean, even mm-hmm. in that even even in that first round series in the bubble, like he ate Daniel Tice completely for lunch, completely dominated him in every which way. And then, you know, the second half happened and he just, he can't keep it up is, what I'm, is basically what ends up happening. And I just think for the Celtics, they they value more perimeter defense and having a big that can move on the perimeter more than they value someone that's, you know, big enough to just ha- handle one-on-one matchup. So um, that, that, that that's why I think they really like uh, Tristan, even though it should be noted that They did a first offer to Paul Mosat, so I mean that. So it, I mean that that in itself, like they liked Tristan, but it wasn't like he was their first option for the MLE either. Um, I just think they, I just think they viewed it as, what what do we do if Daniel Tice picks up two fouls in the first quarter? Mm -hmm. And last year it was they either had to take a huge step defensively with Ennis Cantor. Or they open the Pandora box that is uh, Robert Williams and see whatever the heck came out of it on that night. And I think having Tristan was more so getting someone that isn't necessarily going to be like so much better or anything, but it's just going to be someone that can do a lot of the defensive things and at, at times more so um, that that Daniel Tice does whenever he's out and being able to be, being able to never really have that huge a drop off. From the from the big man position, and I think that's kind of how they viewed him. I kind of think some of the other stuff, like his play, like his you know potential for playmaking, some of the interesting stuff he showed as like a pig and pop guy and hitting short rollers last year, that they you know they see as maybe also like a good fit around their other stars as well. So um, I don't know if the selection of Thompson for all the Emily was how they valued him financially or just how they thought his fit would you know, raise the game of also of the people around him just because he's such a good confidence piece for them.
1: So it's sort of like them trying to straddle, I guess, two sides of the fence where if you want um, someone who's going to be better in space defensively, which is, you know, that's not going to be Aaron Baines if you look to bring him back, but you also wanted someone, yeah, if you're, you're trying to retool around Jason Tatum, but you don't want to necessarily bet on, even if they're a lot cheaper in an inexperienced flyer, where like a Harry Giles would have been super interesting for this team too. And so Tristan Thompson, just from my read, from what you're saying, kind of represents like the the middle ground. Yeah, I would agree. Yeah, that's how I feel. How does the big man rotation work now? Uh, is the expectation, and I say this, I'll preface this with, I've been working on a huge player rankings project, so I have not watched um, much preseason because I don't want my pre, like rankings to be influenced by watching meaningless basketball. Um, but what does the big man rotation end up looking like for them? And does, you know, getting... Thompson, does it infer anything about the future of, of Robert Williams III in Boston?
2: Um, yeah, so I in terms of in terms of rotation, you probably wouldn't have gotten anything from preseason anyway just because Tristan didn't play the whole time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Tysol, he played in one of the games. And at this stage, I think we all know who Daniel Tysol is anyway. Um, I think what I think the Celtics are going to just have eventually when Tristan gets all the way healthy, I think he's going to ultimately become the starter. Um I just think for reasons on and off the court, he didn't come. He's not going to come to Boston. He did not come to Boston without a promise not to start. It's right. just my so I, I think he's going to start. I think Tice is going to back him up, and then I think Rob is going to be like kind of like that for sure third option. If someone picks up two quick fouls and needs to change up their rotation, um, the, if if an injury's happened, and you know Tice is, Tice is injury prone. Um. Prior to this year, Thompson himself has been injury prone. So, the third it the third option maybe sounds like someone doesn't might that doesn't have a promised role, but even during a shortened regular season, he might he's going to see himself as the number two, and at times the number one at various points. So, it's still kind of a big year for him. It uh, Rob that is. It's also a contract year for him. So, I think you know Stevens and the Celtics. I think they see where he can be good. But Steven's just there's just certain defensive mistakes that Steven's a big tyrant of. Like he can like he can live with, with for example, Grant Williams getting um, you know, getting dunked over by Montrez Harrell or something in the post, or, you know, maybe getting crossed up by a guard and some putting up a good contest because he was in the right place, did the right thing, it just wasn't the right result. What he cannot stand is horrible defensive mistakes like making the wrong reads and being way way late on rotation and unfortunately for time lord he falls in that category so um i think people saw it a little bit in that you know that bubble series against the raptors where he couldn't be on the court when Sir Ibaka was on the court because he didn't know how to kind of play the cat and mouse game of the pick and roll
1: mm-hmm.
2: uh, he always just picked one option and completely forgot the other assignment and it was a clear weakness because, you, you know, part of the marketing of, broad, of the Time Lord is he's this big mobile guy who can also be a rim blocker. But if you don't have the defensive field to to do, to do, uh you know, to know where to be and stuff like that, your mobility is kind of irrelevant, ultimately. Um, so I think he, he has to prove that he can make those, he can make those kind of, you know, better defensive um, reads in the moment. Um and if he does that, honestly, and just kind of just being the rim runner and then you know, not always chasing on the box not always leaving his feet, just kind of being more, more, more technically sound, he's honestly probably the highest upside big on the roster if he does that stuff. So, and I think they're going to give him those minutes to show it, but the, having Thompson enticed also means that he's, on, he's not on a big leash, so he kind of has to either kind of put up or shut up in a way. So and 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 I think that was a message that was that was sent this year. Like you're on a contract year, we can definitely move. We can definitely move on. But you know, you're gonna have a chance, but you're not gonna have this large bleach. So you just need to kind of do it and show us, and you'll be rewarded. Or you can really be on the bench very easily because they can. They've they've used Grant at the five, so I don't think they like that. Um, they have Thompson and Tice together that can put up enough minutes, and if they really needed another big, an emergency, you know, it's not hard to get them. So yeah. Um, yeah, it'll be a big year for Rob. I just think, I so to kind of answer your question, I don't, I don't think they made a decision on him yet, but they definitely showed that like, this is not, this is not, this is, this is a year where you just have to either prove that you can be better or we're very easily just going to move on from you. And I think it's, just, it's kind of like a test and see if he passes.
1: He, I find him to be a joy to watch though because he just covers so much ground, and like it's like I've called it chaotic ground in the past because it, it feels ungoverned and like sometimes pointless. And I, you kind of already mentioned that, but I, he's still just kind of a joy to watch because of how much ground he can cover. Like I'm not talking about open floor, like just in the set half court. Like he can be all over. I don't, it's like undisciplined, but it's really fun to watch.
2: Yeah, he is. He is an exciting play. He's high, like he's the only high flying, like threat. I don't remember the last time something's had someone like that. I mean, because when we got KG, he was not like that. So it's been a while. And it's just, you kind of see it. And the thing that's interesting, too, besides for, like, the whole athleticism, is that he kind of has, like, this, like, he kind of has a really good feel as a passer, which is really interesting. Because, like, you kind of, you see it in flashes, like, when when he catches the ball in the short roll. Like, he'll know how to kick it to the corner and read that very quickly, where you kind of hope, like, oh, maybe he can develop something like into like a Clint Capella, where he learned how to make those
0: mm-hmm. short
2: roll, short roll passes in Houston. But then it's just like it's always just flashes, and then the injuries, and the inconsistency on on the defensive end. Um, it's just always been like if his feel can just maybe catch up just a little bit to his athleticism, um, he'd be hard to take off the floor. But it's just it's just like the larger sample size always always has been coming back negative for right now, and and. He has to just learn how to be more disciplined on the floor if he's gonna be able to do all the exciting things that you know people love to see as well.
1: We've gone almost twenty minutes without mentioning Jason Tatum, which is either terrible or really impressive. I haven't decided which one yet uh he last year like the, I, if it reached a point I think where people like accepted even if they were skeptical that he was just a superstar, which was right because there was like a turning point and it was before then um and I've seen you mention it on Twitter. Like even last season, when people were harping on the shot selection, like it was always overblown. And then to see him last year just turn into like one of the best off the dribble three point shooters in the league. And there were stretches where he was putting like really good amounts of pressure on the rim. I'm wondering, you know, going into this season, I would peg him as fringe top 10 player. It's tough because there's a lot of injured stars coming back. So definitely in the top 10 to 15 discussion. Is he going to have a chance to like really make another jump due to the departure of Hayward and Kemba? Uh, in the sense that okay, we've seen what he can really do on defense, particularly away from the ball. We know that he has this off the dribble three. You can trust him um, to really anchor the offense as a scorer. But last year, like there were moments where he showed flashes of making uh, you know more complicated passes on the move. And now with with Kemba out to start the year and God knows how long in general, uh, and Hayward just gone, is he going to get? an ample opportunity to shoulder more of that playmaking burden, or is that going to be dispersed onto other people because he's already doing so much?
2: Well, I mean, I think, I think uh, publicly they'll say it's a team thing and everyone needs to take a step up, but um, technically speaking, yes. And uh, I mean, uh, he has to be, he's, he's, the good, he's the team's undisputed number one. Their, um, their number two was down, which generally means there's going to be more usage, which are going to, is going to be funneled to him unless, you know, they decide they want more Marcus Smart threes, which I, I wouldn't expect. Um, so yeah, I mean he's gonna have the ball more. So by nature he's gonna be expected to create more for others as well because he can't shoot it every time. Um, I thought in the ter- I thought in the playoffs he did show some some more playmaking um, ability. Just I always thought for me I didn't see it as that impressive because like I've been a huge fan of him even from like his high school days. In high school he played point guard. And he used to make these kind of like easy reads, which, in a way, I thought they were in the bubble because there were zone looks where they were clearly trying to take something away, and it was an obvious kind of like first and second read. Those are the type of things he can he can make. Um, what what you want to see this year is if he he can be the one manipulating the defense as opposed to just taking what the defense gives him. Um, can he can he you know snake through a snake through a PNR? Um, use his eyes to make the big freeze and then create an alley-oop opportunity that way. Mm-hmm. Um, is he making those type of reads that, you know, make Luca so special, <laughs> um, you know, and he's never going to be Luca to that level because there's a reason why there's only one Luca in the world. Uh, but can he, can he at least be someone that gets you, you know, five, six assists a game. And, and generally I think because of his pull-up three shooting, as you mentioned, the type of defenses that teams are going to play against him are, going to are going to open up certain passing lanes where he's going to fall just fall into assist from that nature but if he can take that next step in terms of manipulation um you know i think the team is going to need it because their depth is not very good they're going to kind of need that from him and i think in a way i think yeah to answer your question it is going to be expected that he takes more of that lead because i don't know who else on the roster
1: can honestly yeah, there's I I feel like sort of a Devin Booker-type jump in the playmaking department wouldn't be out of the question for him where it's uh, Devin Booker's a lot better at manipulating the defense in the half court, but he's also not like a flashy passer. Like you wouldn't compare him to a Luka or a Harden or a Simmons. It's just the fact that because he's on the floor and by virtue of him moving and having any type of vision, he's setting up shots that wouldn't otherwise exist. And that feels like something, at least, from um games that I saw later in the year that I that I think Tatum's going to be able to do.
2: Yeah, and you know, can we talk about with Devin Booker for a second? His game like I don't know what year it happened, but I remember I was watching him only in his career and he just kind of like you uh, you saw he had more of an isolation capability like right off the bat, but then like he was still kind of just like a shooter. And he, his his whole his whole thing was just shoot first and shoot second and shoot third. And he made this jump. I don't. Maybe you. Maybe you know better. Better than me. But like, he he just has such a control over the game now. Like he knows when it's his time to attack. He knows when it's time his time to get his teammates involved. He he's okay being off ball, being using different things as a decoy. Like he's such a complete basketball player. It is such a joy to watch, and it makes you so happy that you even brought him up as a comparison to Tatum because that kid is a baller. Us baller but back but back to Tatum I, I just had to give Devin Booker some love because that's a I love his game
1: um uh, yeah as someone who covers and and likes the Celtics giving Devin Booker love I never would have guessed that like two years ago when it felt like there was the there was just a little bit of like Booker versus Tatum uh social media I don't want to call it a war but some hostility going back and forth
2: oh man, yeah it was fun first first was the Tatum versus Jackson because if you if you remembered, like after that after the first year, it was still kind of debatable who would be better because Jackson had that explosion at the end of the year, uh, before absolutely imploding his career thereafter. Um,
1: yeah, talk about someone I missed on. I was very high on the court of, on on Josh Jackson that did not work out so well.
2: <laughs> yeah, I figured I figured he would. It was, it was just like I didn't trust his shooting, and he had he had the he had the forty percent three point shooting, but you could just the, for me the looks there were just like. Mm, There's set shots. He takes too long against NBA defenses. How's that going to look? And then when he talked in the interviews, he was acting like it was not a problem for him, and that always that always makes me worried. Like when players don't see like clear issues that might present themselves at the NBA level. Mm-hmm. But I mean, I still thought he was going to be better than this. I did not expect him to be G League you know, minimum contracts for the Pistons. It's 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 it it, it, it was not good for him. But yeah. I like, I like, I like them Booker and <laughs> us us in the Valley of the Suns, you know, maybe we
1: can have some reconciliation. Um, I think to the point you were speaking on with Booker and their people who cover Phoenix could do this way better than I can. I just feel like the the way his in-between game ended up clicking and he was able to add like some, um, you know, different changes of pace to his game. Like when he was inside the arc, it felt like 2017, 18, maybe closer to 2018 the year, just in general, that's when it really just started coming together for him. And I think what we've also just seen is um, what happens when someone is young and people are viewing him like through this lens where he's supposed to be older. And then two, what happens when you take good players who are surrounded by very little NBA talent and then give them actual NBA talent to work with, which is what I think we've seen um, basically over the past three years, but definitely over the past um, um, two with him. The other player wanted to ask about a Boston, well, I want to ask about a lot of players on Boston, does any of this additional um playmaking void fall to Jalen Brown? They upped his pick and roll usage last year, though it was still just negligible usage overall. It was just compared to the season before I think it more than doubled or was close to doubling. And he did seem um later in the year uh, like where he had less tunnel vision coming around like like ball screens. It looked like there was just a better feel there. And my one way off base on this? And two, if I'm not, do you think he has like a a playmakers bump in him as well? Just as we sort of, I wouldn't project it to be anywhere near what I expect Tatum to be, but just where he can initiate and get you into your offense in the half court.
2: So I definitely think Jalen Brown is going to have a playmaking bump, but I don't think it's going to come from using him in those type of like playmaking um, roles as if like Tatum, as a Tatum, how we expect him to be used in heavy Pick and roll um, schemes and of that nature. I think for Jalen, his playmaking bump has to come from after after that first step. After he gets by that guy, when he's going downhill, is he making the extra pass enough? Um, I think he gets preset a lot of times. Like he pre decides before he makes his move mm-hmm. what he's gonna do, and he does not. He does not. He has not improvised very much. like away from that. Um, and I think this year, if the Celtics are going to have a chance while, while Kemba's out to be like very good, he needs to be able to be able to get by his guy and be able to kick out the shooters more effectively, um, to, you know, not get himself stuck in, stuck in the hole. And if he can make those type of reads, just generally speaking, like driving kicks is how it boils down to do, do, those are going to be where he can make his playmaking bumps. Um, and if he can, he, if he can do that. Um, I think between Smart and Tatum and even Teague and a little bit of Thompson, I think they can kind of be be an okay passing team with that. But if he's kind of still kind of like the overall kind of mostly tunnel vision with flashes of passing here and there, the Celtics' offense is going to have a lot of very clunky moments um, without
1: Kemba. And... Sort of to that point, is this is there going to come a time, or is it you know right away, where they're going to maybe be more reliant than initially expected on like one of their younger guards? Just because they're you know even aside just with even with Kemba Walker, I feel like this rotation is between seven and eight like guaranteed NBA players deep, and like none of them the uh, the ones that are coming off the bench uh behind the starting lineup are like guaranteed to add a ton of playmaking and I would throw Jeff Teague into there. He just feels like his, his aging curve feels like it's been stark, like ever since he went to, to Minnesota. And so are they going to give, you know, the, the Tremont Waters, the Peyton Pritchard, the, the Aaron Naismith, like, are, are those guys going to have opportunities this year? Maybe even a Langford, if he's ever healthy, uh, or do you not see them, you know, veering into to that direction because they still do have these immediate expectations, and you know, there's a couple rookies in there, and then there's just generally guys. Even with Carson Edwards, like they just don't have a ton of NBA experience.
2: Yeah, so just to kind of lay it out for the viewers who aren't Celtics fans, I think you're right that they have about seven, eight guys because they're probably gonna, you know, without Kemba, you're probably starting Marcus Smart, um, Jalen, Jason. Um, maybe they've been starting Javante Green in the preseason. They started everyone, so let's just say for the sake of argument, they start Javante Green. And then Mm -hmm. they have either Tristan or Tice, right? And then, so that's the five. Those are five guys. Um, Four of them I trust. I don't trust Javante Green. Um, And then after that, the guys who you trust off the bench are going to be, you know, Tice for one. Um, When Marcus gets there, maybe Marcus. Um, Teague, you probably trust Grant Williams. So that means you're probably, but you still need like one or two more guys if you want to be a serious contender which means that they they do, as you said, they're going to need at least one or two of Pritchard, Langford, um, Naismith, Ojale, um, or Devonte to become dependable. Um, so And they are going to get opportunities to do that just because they are so thin. Um, and yeah, I mean, they're going to have their chances, I mean, especially early on in the year, because the team has been looking like, one of those teams that still hasn't fully recovered from being in the Eastern conference six weeks ago. So Mm -hmm. they're going to get a lot those young guys are probably going to get a lot more minutes early on in the year. And whoever takes advantage of those opportunities, unfortunately Romeo is not going to be there for the early part. So he's going to miss those initial opportunities to get some, but yeah, they're going to need one or two of those guys to really step up and become not necessarily like, like very good, but they need to become trustable role players, right? Like if if Javante Green can somehow turn himself into like a, like a Royce O'Neill type of player, like that'd be huge. Um, if Robert Williams can become a dependable big, that'd be huge. But it's still up in the air right now. And a lot of these guys are unproven, which is why I definitely understand some of the cynicism going in because we just really don't know how it could turn out.
1: Do you particularly like any of the um, young one or two of the young guards more than most?
2: I will say I was I was a bigger fan of Naismith than just what I generally saw on you know Twitter, but that's its own you know story. Um, I just think Naismith just because I generally don't I generally don't think I'm one of those guys that doesn't believe like picking for fit and picking for like talent are very different because I feel like. If a guy fits with what you're trying to do and he fits a particular need, you're going to give him more opportunity, therefore, like raising his chances of being able to reach his outcomes. So I kind of think they still kind of go hand in hand. And I thought Neesmith was a good pick just because they're a team that desperately needs just guys who can straight up shoot, and especially a movement shooter, guy who can just, you know, catch and pull. Like Mm -hmm. they needed some, they don't have that element at all. And they need that element. So I think that by nature, that's going to get him more opportunities. It's just a matter of whether he can, you know, because he's been out of basketball for a long time, not just, you know, from the bump from, you know, COVID and all that, but he was injured early in the year. So he that's has just to-
1: so tough for rookies because they already weren't going to be playing since February. But if you missed a bunch of th- like looking at James Wiseman in Golden State, like how long it's been since he played like real organized competitive basketball.
2: Yeah, exactly. So those for those guys, like, and even in the preseason a little bit, it looked like just right now the game might be too fast for him. Now we've seen, you know, we've I've seen guys like Jalen Brown look like that for the first half of his rookie year. And by the second half, they, they were trusting him to uh, to defend, like, Bradley Beal in the playoffs. So that stuff, you know, that stuff can can click when it does click and it clicks. <laughs> That's a <very laughs> funny sentence, but <laughs> I hope people understand what that meant. Um, yeah. Yeah, like it can happen, but right now, you know, I'm I'm a, I'm higher on him. I just feel like if he clicks, like he's exactly the type of complimentary player that you want alongside um the Jays and Kemba.
1: Is is Grant Williams just like the the backup four for this team, or do you think that there's going to be more matchup-based uh, decisions being made where maybe it's Ojala on some nights?
2: Yeah, I think right now Grant Williams thoroughly. Has beaten has beaten out Odele, um for a spot. I just think he, because of the fact that he can play a lot of different positions, do a lot of things. That I think right now they're probably going to go to Grant as long with, with the contingency being he has to not be a non-shooter. He has to be able to continue to you know shoot right. um, and be at least an average shooter for this to absolutely make sense. But if he's doing that, I just think they're going to have him as the backup four, they're gonna have him play at the five sometimes. Um he might even be paired with uh with the Thompson, with the Rob like that when they want to go a little bit bigger. Um and because of the fact that I think it's not only just I think he has more to his game than what the, than what he's been showing so far. Cause right now he looks kind of just kind of like a very stationary, like limited skill guy. But he was a he's a guy who can, you know, kind of make plays out of the pick and roll and be a real kind of oh, uh, like movement playmaker that I think as he gets more comfortable playing in different positions, he'll start showing more of that. So I think, yeah, he, he'll, he might start the years back backup four, but I think his role is going to quickly develop to like just whatever the team needs type of thing. Like the way Marcus Smart's role developed in
1: Boston. Yeah. Uh- And he, look, he shot the ball well from three during the playoffs, too, which I think was huge. He led the playoffs, only 17 attempts, but 10 of 17, 58.8%, the highest three-point percentage uh, in in the playoffs among players who attempted at least eight, I think. So uh, maybe that's a sign of what he could do. Is there, who's going to be stretched, like, when you're looking at, and I'm assuming it's going to be just one of, like, the young guys. Like, who do you consider a backup wing on this team? Because they really don't have one. And if you look at it's funny if you look at their depth charts like around like internet if you're going on Roto World or if it's ESPN or something else. I know positions don't matter as much, but like if I see the old listed in the three spot, it just gives me the a case of a little bit of the giggles because they just really don't have a backup wing. It could be smart if he wasn't going to be a member of the starting lineup because he's basically positionless at 6-3, which is just wild and awesome. Uh but who do you see as being like who's getting backup like Three or or you know hybrid like 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 who is just their primary backup wing? I'm rambling through this because I I don't even have an answer to fathom myself.
2: Yeah, I don't know because I mean I think they would they would probably consider I don't know I don't I would think because Brad has said they really just kind of go by guards wing bigs. I don't know how they would they can they consider certain gods multiple positions. So I mean. Honestly, it's it's an interesting question because could, you could say maybe maybe it's maybe it is ends up being Shunny. Maybe it's Langford when he gets because, gets healthy. Maybe it's Naismith.
1: Yeah, maybe just by size, like the, it's he's six six, right?
2: Yeah, maybe it's Javante, but it's just it's weird because you know they have Tatum, who I guess depending on what you call his position, like the way the way he's being used is like such a heavy pick and roll guy. He almost has a has a role type as like a guard, but he's six eight, 10, whatever. And he's, you know, he's, he defends wings. Uh, they, they consider Jalen a guard, but he defends boards routinely for the team. So for them, I just, I, I think it honestly doesn't matter, but it does, it does bring up a point that, um, you know, they they do probably need another like that piece on the perimeter, just a guy that they can reliably trust which is why I hope, and maybe this is going to get into something you talked about earlier. The trade with the trade exception, they're able to, you know, bring someone in if if one of the if some of these like young guys just don't show anything.
1: Yeah, twenty eight point five million dollar trade exception, and a lot of these just tend to expire without being used. It felt like Golden State using it to get. Kelly Bridge Jr. was an anomaly with this team though you look at it they have plenty of room under the the hard cap and I feel like they have plenty of needs and could have even more depending on what Kemba looks like this year so would you anticipate or hope that they would use it and have you identified like if you had to choose one area of need because it feels like you could go like backup playmaker you could just go wing um, is there a player or just an archetype an idea of a player that you would gravitate towards if they are looking to again use this
2: well, I mean, I know for me, I, I would probably – it be it really depends, which is why I don't see them using it very early because you want to see what you have in your team, what type of team this is. For sure. Because if Jason Tatum is legit like an MVP candidate, the team has not looked like they lost a step even without Kemba, and you have Kemba coming back and stuff like that, and you're like, ooh, we just need this one piece. You have to go for it. You have to use it mid season and. I mean, a team I've been looking at is OKC that had George Hill. I don't think Trevor Reese has been bought out, but I mean, if he's not bought out, I mean, you could literally, I think you could fit both of them in the CPE just like that and maybe give something a little back and then, you know, you get those two pieces and now it's like you're in business. Um, But if it, but, you know, if the team just kind of looks middling and, you know, you need probably another much bigger piece to really actually make any tangible movement forward. I, the second option is maybe maybe you wait till after the year because, you know, right now I, they have a hard cap
1: on them, so they can't really use the full 28 mil during the season. But, yes, that's a blow to anyone who wants them to go after Otto Porter, but I don't think they should be going after Otto Porter anyway, so there you go.
2: Yeah, but if you get to after the season, I don't, I don't know – like you might be able to be a sign-and-trade candidate where there's a lot more kind of like free agents out there. It could be a tool for you to potentially – Be a player in free agency without having any cap space, and you know potentially with that twenty-eight million, if you're able to maybe get a sign and trade for maybe not the top tier guys that are still left, but maybe that maybe that second or tier, maybe second or third tier, um, and you probably and you know you can maybe get a bigger name that way, or you could or you can do something like go for Buddy Heald or something like that or or like that level of player um, as well. So I think. To answer your question, it's just going to depend on how close the team looks to contending. And I think they'll be more patient if they're further. If you start seeing them make moves, you know, during the midseason, it means that, you know, like they really think they have a winner um,
1: this year. Yeah, the good thing about, I would probably advocate like using some of it, like split it up and then what you were saying over the offseason, like it's a lot easier to um, do like those non-simultaneous trades because like I think part of whatever package Boston offers, the appeal is going to be like, we can give you like one of these young guards too. And so like, just because of the roster spots and since they can't actually be traded with a player uh, with the trade traded player exception um, that it gets harder to do something like that during the, the regular season. And so you can make a small move. Yeah. If a Riza becomes available, um, you know, I know Hill's not a wing, JJ Reddick's not a wing, but if like, there's something you can do there, those are guys that I feel like could help this team. The one that I've thought about, and I'm curious what you think. Um, and I had talked about this on a, on a previous podcast. It doesn't really give you, wing depth positionally on offense but defense um I think it does while also making you better suited to go up against and I know you said this wasn't their main concern but like someone who could defend Giannis and Bam Adebayo and and Joel Embiid Aaron Gordon is kind of the low key name I've circled and that's again it would be complex to get there because I think you need actual other players thrown in there it's not just going to be the traded um the TPE and then like you know a future pick or something uh but I really like his potential fit on this squad, especially given like how thin they are at the the 3-4. And I wouldn't I say he's more of a 4-5 than a 3-4, but he can defend
2: 3-4-5. I love the Aaron Gordon thing. My my concern though is the is Aaron Gordon himself and where how he sees himself as a player. Because I feel like all of us like basketball nerds see how he can be such how he how his most optimized role is How effective he can be in that, and it's just unclear if he sees that, or if he, or if he sees himself as someone that could be, that should be considered, you know, in the in the star tier, and someone that wants to be focused on more like, you know, self creating and not being seen Mm -hmm. as a role player. So if you could, if I, if we could promise that he's coming in and accepting kind of like the role that we envision him as, that kind of like, you know, super versatile defensive piece that can, you know, space the floor for you, but also provide provide you a little bit of creation as well. Um, in spurts and stuff like that. You know, you the Celtics would definitely be all for that. And I could see them giving up something, probably not probably not any of like the top like Kemba, Smart and or the Jays, but you could probably get like you could probably get anything else from there mostly from like to get Eric Gordon. So um that's, that, that's probably, like, the highest ceiling option, I would say. It'd be interesting to see what...
1: And it still leaves you with uh, eight figures worth of the TP left over because he doesn't really make a ton of money.
2: I know. And, I mean, I know they loved him in the draft, too. But, and they they got... That was a Marcus Smart draft that I think they actually... I think, I think he was number one on their board. I don't know.
1: Yeah, so there'd obviously be other moving parts there, but he was someone I looked at. I do think that... Uh, he's he's becoming you're right just about the self-creation i'd be curious to see just what he looks like on a team that's good and generates better spacing and he's become the last season like orlando really unlocked his passing and i don't know like how much that would be feasible to tap into in uh boston but like he was running pick and rolls and he was passing like out of out of the block so like there's stuff he could do and again if you give him higher quality looks um he's gone stretches you know where it's like half the season more than half the season where he's shooting 36 percent or so on catch and shoot threes um, so that might be something to look to, but yeah, I think the offensive fit—if he's not going to just be a play finisher, um, you know, floor runner guy, who's going to get putbacks or come off the the pick and roll—if uh, he really wants to handle the ball, I could see that being an awkward fit to where you don't want to, um, you know, Orlando's not just going to dump him, so to give up actual value to get him would definitely be dicey. Um, I did want to, uh, excuse me, as I'm as I'm choking, I did want to ask you really quickly: Were you surprised that they let Brad Wanamaker go? Um, was that like sort of a decision of you know what, Jeff Teague? Is Brad Wanamaker is probably the better shooter at this point. Um, I find him more interesting. Like uh, overall, um, at the same time, like he's Jeff T might just be the better game manager. Um, you know, playmaker. Is that like the conscious decision they basically made?
2: Well, I was, I personally was devastated. Because I love Brad Wanamaker, and I was, I was actually surprised I let him go because usually teams when they have those like fines from like the overseas guys and stuff like that, they generally want to keep keep them. So I thought, you know, based on the cost and the available options out there, I thought he was gonna be he was gonna be returning again. And I know you made the point about you know not no depth on the wings and stuff like that. But a guy like Wanamaker, they were using him to defend wings because even though he's you know height wise, what six three six four, he had that you know you know thick frame and he had a long wingspan about a six nine wingspan. So you know they they don't mind using guys like that because Stevens would I think. You know he likes having ball handlers on the court, so for them they would they would use a they would use a six a six or a six the big wingspan on the wing like that. Even if they got George Hill, it'd be, be kind of similar. So from that point of view, I was like they lost a lot of defensive versatility, letting him go for Teague. Um, but I do think your point on Teague kind of being the better game manager, um, kind of being a better like playmaker overall, shooter, um, more consistent scorer. Um, I think he, he checks all those boxes. Um, if preseason is any indication, he was definitely stealing money from the Hawks in Minnesota because <laughs> he looks much quicker. He looks much more explosive than I remember. Um, he's probably, he's probably was like one of the few bright spots for them. So, I mean, if he carries that over and just, you know, he's just a little bit of what he was, you know, before he went to bad teams. Um, I'd see, I see, I, I do understand that even though, um, I I thought they were going to keep Wanabaker for sure.
1: I know a lot of this will be matchup based, especially when we're looking up front at the five, but what do you see as their best or most common closing lineup in close games?
2: I think it's going to be just the, the the top, the guys, the first, the Kemba smart um, Jalen and Jason. And I just think they're going to go Thompson. Um, I think ultimately it's kind of like the best balance. You don't want to go too small. Cause Grant really doesn't. It's a weird thing with like um, the the undersized guys that play fives. Because you can't really. It's not. I don't know if there's a way you can really track it outside of. Um, I guess you could, you can by rim rim food attempts, but there's there's a difference. Like Bam and Bam and Grantland are kind of the same size, but when Bam is when Bam is around the paint, he has a deterrent effect. Mm-hmm. People don't want to actually drive on Bam. They don't. They see. They see that as resistance. And even though Grant Williams kind of has the IQ and feel to be in the right position when playing small ball five, he doesn't necessarily have that. He doesn't have that wingspan and, and therefore, or that kind of that athleticism that generates the paint deterrent. So, teams still can't drive straight at him. Which means for me, um, you know, he can't be. He wouldn't be. He wouldn't in my, my idea of um, the small ball closing five for me. So if he if you can't go small with him, there's really no other wing like that on the roster. So you probably pick be, be between Thompson and Tice. And even though Tice is better than what most people, you know, realize, I still think Tristan is still the, the better option just because he is a little bit more stronger of an interior presence. Um, Tice has sometimes struggle even against like smaller people just being strong with the ball um especially when he's good either either when he's going up for alley-oops or like getting the ball in the post against a mismatch and um stuff like that he's very susceptible to getting weak side blocks just he's not very strong with the ball in that in in that aspect and he's actually as teams started to realize in the playoffs actually not that good of a shooter either so he is he is a little limited and i just think thompson just kind of having that can kind of do what Tyson does, but then he goes so stronger would probably get him the edge. So um, I'd probably go Thompson and then go, you know, the Jays, uh, Kemba, and Smart.
1: Is there, let's say you're, you're made head coach of the Celtics or Brad Stevens has to listen to whatever you say. Is there a quirkier lineup combination that you're hoping they trot out at, at any point this season to try it?
2: In terms of quirky lineups, um, I'm sure, I'm not going to say because I'm sure there's going to be at one point this year, Smart is going to end up playing the four and there's going to be three other guards on the court. Like, I'm sure at some point it, there's going to be like a Kemba, um, like Pritchard, um, Teague, Smart, and like Thompson lineup. <laughs> and it's going to be making some comeback in like OKC or something. Like, I, I'm sure that lineup is going to be there. But the quirkiest one I see, I love, I love, I love like the wings. Like the all wing stuff, so I would love to see like a lineup of like Tatum as the point guard, um, Jalen there, Jalen and Naismith, um, hoping you know you, you're getting the shooting from Naismith, kind of the slashing and um, scoring from Jalen, and then um, you put in Grant and then Javante Green, and just all go all wings. You see what you see what happens. You see you have you hope you have enough playmaking and feel from from Grant and Tatum. And that, you know, Naismith Smith is providing shooting, and you have all this all this, you know, athleticism between Jalen Javante and you just see what the heck happens. Um will pro- we'll probably never happen, but that'd be that'd be one of the, the quirky lines I'd like to see since the Celtics love drafting up all these wings.
1: Yeah, that was basically one of mine where I, I I wanted to see um really their four main guys though, like Kemba, Smart, Tatum and Brown, and then could we get um, Naismith in there and did you just go hyper small? The one that I was I think is probably more realistic that I want to see just because also this team really isn't built to get weird anymore. Like without Hayward. Like there were so many different combinations that you could theorize. Um, but Grant Williams with the uh, with like their four main guys, I would like to see more of. They didn't play uh they they played like under twenty five possessions last year of Walker, Smart, Brown, Tatum and, and Williams. So I won't even infer anything from the data, but that's a lineup that I would just like to see because if if for some reason this team like does sort of struggle to to hit its ceiling or match what they were doing last year. Like I think you need to lean into um, lineups where you can create a bunch of mismatches and that might be where they're best served. And I think that Grant at the five still has a, a pathway there, especially again, if like any of the touch he showed in the, the postseason carries over to now, that would just be a lineup that I would be super interested in, in watching more of.
2: I, yeah, for sure. And man, it would be, an, I, Grant Grant, and Grant is going to be such a swing piece for them this year. Cause I mean, Man, they kind of need him to be like a PJ Tucker-esque player, and if he could bring even just sixty to seventy percent of that, it would really kind of change, kind of like their versatility and make them, you know, have those more funkier lineups. Um, if he really is able to like slot slide, slide across the lineups um, as they're envisioning.
1: So their win total for this year is set per Vegas at forty four point five, which for people like myself who cannot think in terms of seventy two games, that's the equivalent of fifty one wins in uh, for in a normal season would you go over under on that and what do you think is a realistic finish given what happened this offseason for them in the eastern conference when you're looking at the standings
2: what is the word what is the word when you don't go over and under says, what is push. that huh? push push that yeah I'd push. That, i think i think that's right around where they'll be um if i had to be pushed though to make an actual decision um, i would I would probably say under just because I worry that they could start slow just without kemba um with with some of the whips how they kind of have looked kind of like weirdly fatigued in the preseason but I guess not weirdly since it's been such a short off season but they might be a team where that plays a factor um into um as well so if I had to be pushed, I'd probably go under just just from that standpoint but realistically like I do think they'll play – ultimately like they're around that level when when they're healthy and right it's about like a 51 win team
1: i went under for them and i'm like i feel like i'm becoming increasingly lower on them just the way that they're built and maybe there's a move they can make in the midseason, like that'll change that um it's also very unfortunate because and this is i won't say it's written in stone but it's on paper and on record uh that i picked jason tatum to win mvp this year at bleacher report and i've had more time to think about it since i made that pick and i like don't like it as much but i love being right so um, i'm hoping that they smash the over and that kemba's injury plus hayward's departure is sort of like the the springboard for tatum to enter the mvp discussion this year selfishly this is purely selfish motives yeah and
2: i mean i definitely get the cynicism because like you just you at the end of the day you like i like i probably like thompson more than, than you and I, I like his fit more but even for me to, for me to see like an optimistic view requires me to see someone like Aaron Naismith having like a Tyler Hero-esque year, um, where he's just reliable, like getting reliable, like eight to 12 points a game and being like a real threat from three. Um, It requires something that's like unknown, an unknown variable at this moment. And like, you know, and you're also relying on rookies to be consistent, which has generally just never been the case. So yeah, like it definitely feels like the year where the, way, the only way to maintain the level they were at last year is Jason Tatum legitimately going from like a, like a top 15-ish, maybe 20-ish player to like a legitimate like top 10 guy. He has to be that in order for them to um, stay at least at the level where they were at last season because I don't know how much they could rely on their, on their death at all this season
1: and maybe it's maybe this team is just better suited for Brad Stevens where it feels like the fewer proven like the less proven talent you give him like the better he actually coaches and so they um you know m- maybe last year might be just an exception kemba was just such a good fit for everything they were doing so maybe they get like the the Brad Stevens you know getting stuff out of players that uh other coaches wouldn't uh be able to tap into that value like maybe they get that bump this season or something i honestly don't know
2: i don't know maybe maybe they maybe they bring carson edwards from the dead
1: um i still jealous of carson edwards quads and calves i will throw that out there uh alex before i let you go is there anything that i did not ask you about that you uh think that we need to touch on or that you wanted to touch on or maybe something that you think is just misperceived about this team on a national level
2: no not really i think we got i think i mean i think we got everything the season is happening so quick i don't even think there's been enough time for people to even talk themselves in and out of their original their initial takes, you know, but like everything is happening so fast, it's it's kind of weird. Cause I love basketball, but it's so overwhelming. Like as a fan, even as just a fan, it's just like, wait, we're already playing games again. Like I'm not, yep. I'm still trying to process how Tyler Hero dropped thirty-seven points. <laughs> I don't know how I'm supposed to watch preseason right now. And then Kyrie, it's crazy how how fast the season is. But yeah, I don't really think he missed anything um i think we'll see more for sure as the year goes on and that there'll be there'll be much more to talk about when we see how some of their how how some of their gamblers
1: are going to play out alex this was great thank you for giving me so much of your time if you guys are not following alex on twitter remedy that immediately he's a basketball junkie does a great job tweeting about covering the celtics um i love watching his takes in the general um Uh, come across the TL as well. So follow him uh, at Kungu underscore MBA. That's at K-U-N-G-U underscore MBA. Uh, And again, thank you so much for giving me more of your time. And I can say with absolute confidence, I will be bothering you again in the future.
2: Oh man, that's that's awesome, man. Thanks thanks for having me on, Dan. I definitely look forward to coming back on again where hopefully we're talking about Jason Tatum as a legit MVP
1: candidate. Yes, if only so I can be right. I definitely support that. (laughs)